Hello, Topical, and welcome back to your favorite NBA coverage on your favorite podcast with, frankly, your two uh, favorite NBA correspondents at this point. It seems like it's going to be pretty constant like this for a while. So I'm obviously joined by Rod Faruqi. I'm Ryan Moret, and we're going to get right into things because we're trying to catch up here. We're starting uh, playoff previews for the second round when the game ones have already started. you got to be kidding me. So, no. so are you excited, Rod? I am indeed. All right. So I guess we'll get right uh, right into the first the second round matchups. So obviously the Warriors and Pelicans ver- uh, both won their uh, first round matchups pretty uh, convincingly. Let's say. Uh, what what are you expecting out of this series overall? Well, um, from the Warriors and Pelicans, I expect, or well, I'm not sure if I can say expect, but I at least hope for Rajon Rondo and Drew Holiday to keep up with what they did in the first round. I know they. They did a tremendous job on uh, on Damian Lillard and uh, CJ McCollum, which, in in my opinion, in many ways, is it's kind of like a diet version of having to guard Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, because you know Damian Lillard and Steph Curry are a little bit similar, except Steph Curry is you know just a little bit better at essentially everything. Yeah, and Clay Thompson is you know he's probably the greatest role player of all time. I think you know we spent a good amount of time on the last podcast raving about how much we appreciate him. So. Um, you know, if Drew Holiday and uh, Rajon Rondo can at least, uh, you know, maybe do like 70 to 80 percent replication of what they did in the first round against the Portland backcourt, then uh, New Orleans has a legitimate chance, in my opinion, to take this series far. However, um, you know, even though the, the series has already started, but even prior to the series, I really didn't think that New Orleans would be able to win more than maybe two games in this series. Um, and uh, that just being based on the fact that I knew Steph Curry was slated to return in the middle of the series, uh, which he did last night. So um, I, w- I was expecting a good hard-fought series. I was expecting Anthony Davis to kind of go back and forth with Kevin Durant. Um, you know, even though their play styles are different, they're both, you know, I think I, I heard, I, I read a-, a few articles actually during the middle of the first round or, uh, or, you know, around the end of the first round that said Anthony Davis might be, you know, uh, with Kawhi Leonard being sort of out of the discussion at the moment, he might you might be able to consider him a top three player in the NBA, considering he is probably at this point in time the best two way player. You know, obviously since Kawhi's not playing, yeah. um, so you know he was he was involved in discussion. So I was expecting him to kind of elevate because you know that was his first playoff series when I imagine he had to be feeling good. This is the best regular season of his career. He's probably going to finish top three in MVP voting. Uh, you know, behind LeBron and James Harden. Because I don't think Damian Lillard will be, um, you know, perceived as well. But um, I, I expect uh, I expect Anthony Davis to, you know, do a good job at least back and forth, going back and forth with Kevin Durant. But ultimately, because of the, you know, the caliber of role players and help in supporting cast of Golden State, uh, just definitely outdoes the supporting cast of New Orleans. So for that reason, I I expect the Warriors to uh, do a, do a good job winning this series. Yeah, I pretty much second that. I think that the war uh, that the Pelicans can really start dominating the boards if uh, Anthony Davis keeps up his dominant self against Draymond Green. But obviously, Draymond Green is a uh, winner of Defensive Player of the Year a couple times now, so that's not going to be very easy for him. And also, just fa- uh, trying to uh, get Nikola Mirotic to be involved in the paint as well when he likes to uh, stick it out on the perimeter and shoot frees in tower time. So that'll be interesting to see. It's also going to be very interesting to see how much uh, the Warriors play uh, small ball lineups because I know that was something they did a lot in the first round. And uh, players like Pachulia and, well, actually, uh, K- uh, Kayvon Looney was uh, coming off the bench a lot and he, he was playing a ton of minutes. But 
yeah, we'll, we'll see how the lineups uh, fare against the Pelicans. Uh, it, I think it's going to be very important for Drew Holiday to play incredible defense on the perimeter because if Clay Thompson starts going off and then Kevin Durant goes off, as God knows Darius Miller isn't going to be able to slow him down. Then, <laughs> then yeah, like I, I don't, I don't think that the Pelicans would have a chance in that case, but. We'll see, because like the Pelicans, obviously, they can surprise you uh, quite a bit. We both predicted the Trailblazers would win that uh, first-round series, and then the Pelicans come in there and uh, sweep them, make the Pelicans look like they're the next rendition of the Nets or something. But, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see. So, I guess we'll get into uh, positional matchups now. I assume this is going to be the easiest uh, series for us to do that for. So, starting at point guard, we have uh, Sean Livingston versus uh, Drew Holiday. Uh, Sean Livingston, I mean, I give the advantage to Drew Holiday. I just feel like it, at this point, um, I mean, Drew, Sean Livingston's a good player, but he still, he never really expanded his range to be on the three-point line, and while he is taller and a good defender, I feel like he's sort of, the reputation of Sean Livingston, I think, is for some reason still stuck in like 2016 um, when he was able to, you know, legitimately fill uh, you know, at least, you know, a little bit over half of what Steph could do. I remember in 2016, he actually, um, he, he, he started in the first game of the, uh, the playoffs for them, or maybe it was the second game, but whatever game it was, he scored like 21 points and he was, you know, obviously he's an amazing two-way player, but I feel like for, for whatever reason, he's declined a little bit. I don't think he's the same player. Andrew Holiday coming off of, off of a sensational first round where I think he established himself as being probably I would probably say the best two-way guard in the Western Conference. Um, unless I, I don't want to be intentionally forgetting someone. Um, well, there's Jimmy Butler, but best—he's the best two-way point guard. I think I'll say that uh, yeah. for for certain. Um, and you know, I I just feel like at this point, like he's younger, he's better shooter, better defender. Um, Sean Livingston is very limited offensively and defensively. He is still good because of his you know his crazy wingspan and the fact that he's six seven. But, um, you know, I, I don't really think you need to go into why Drew Holiday is a clear choice. Yeah, and you're definitely right about that uh, whole thing where the the Warriors are just remembered for their uh, bench players being amazing in 2016, and, like, that's been a real holdover where everyone thinks that Iguodala is still going off from the bench, and Sean Livingston is still giving you really valuable minutes, and uh, someone like uh, Draymond Green is knocking down all the frees. I mean, he kind of is so far, but, you know, like, that wasn't happening throughout the first round, and, like, that they would have a bunch of contributors off the bench, and like David West would be giving him a ton of minutes, and that 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 remains to be seen. It's kind of hit and miss. But uh, within the Sean Livingston versus Drew Holiday matchup, this seems like a no-brainer. I mean, Sean Livingston is an above-average uh, point guard in the NBA, and his length is always super helpful. But Drew Holiday is, as you said, one of the best uh, defenders at the point guard position, and at the same time, he's always been one of the best ball distributors. And he's lately been pretty hot from uh, free, and just uh, he's been nailing a lot of shots, and that's what he's been needing to do. So it, that's really important for him. And I, I would second that. I think he is the best uh, uh, two-way uh, point guard in the league. Uh, he only second to, uh, to uh, two-way guard uh, for the next person we're going to be talking about in the shooting guard matchup, that being uh, Clay Thompson versus uh, poor Etwan Moore. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and Ryan, just to just remind, uh, I guess, because <laughs> I'm not exactly, I don't remember exactly either, but what's the basis for the starters you're choosing? Is it win shares? Yes. Win shares, okay, yeah. Yeah, um, Yeah. I just wanted to make sure. Uh, Clay Thompson, definitely. <laughs> Best two-way, um, 
Oh, I don't know. I, I get I get caught up in saying best two way because you know Jimmy Butler and him. There's a guy who's really a better defender, but you know, regardless, he's one of probably he's a top two defensive uh, uh, shooting guard in the league. Um, I think I don't even really think that's close. Um, I think him and Jimmy Butler are clearly the two best. Um, and uh, I mean, Clay Thompson is, in my opinion, the third greatest shooter ever, maybe even second. Um, really, only behind Steph Curry. I mean, at this point, he shoots. He's more efficient. He's more. He's a more efficient three-point shooter than Ray Allen. Um, and you know, even Clay Thompson, I think, also has more range than Ray Allen. Um, you know, Ray Allen is sort of. I mean, I understand that he he's he was considered to be the greatest shooter, but it was really only in terms of the amount that he made because you know he he wasn't exactly like he was an efficient. He was a very efficient three point shooter, but he wasn't more efficient than Clay and Steph are. So yeah, uh, you know, Clay Thompson. I think there are very 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 few shooting guards that he isn't the clear advantage in, and you know that just goes to show that the Warriors super team is just they really are the super team. <laughs> so yeah, Clay Thompson because of defense shooting. Um, and just overall impact to the team. He's he's always a plus and a positive. For, like I don't I don't ever recall Clay. Like there, there's never been a situation where I've been watching the Warriors and it's like oh like you can't have Clay out there right now. But I mean and, and that, that's really saying a lot because in my, like there have been moments where like you can't have Steph out there for defensive purposes. Um, you know Steve Kerr has has had moments in the fourth quarter where he hasn't played Steph Curry for defensive reasons. He's played Sean Livingston instead. And you know there are times when you can't play Kevin Durant because you know he sometimes he gets into foul trouble or you know a technical foul he might go off on the refs or you know you you've got issues with him sometimes and he's he gets injured a little bit you know um he, he's missed some games due to nagging injuries he missed 20 games last season due to a knee thing and then draymond green for, for the same reasons not really the injuries but just in terms of their demeanor and how they act on the court um he's kind of a risk to pick up technical foul stuff like that but clay thompson is the most composed player on their team he really doesn't like he, he's probably the like you get zero drop off with him uh simply like there's there, even when he's cold, like it's like he doesn't really have a night where he's so cold that he won't make any impact. Because even if his shot is not falling, he's he's doing something defensively um, to to still be uh, to still have a reason to be out there. Because you know he's not like these other uh, spot up shooters who like if they're not shooting well, then you just you have to take them out of the game because otherwise they're useless. Um, you know he's and he they're very it's very rare that he's actually cold anyway because he's such an efficient three point shooter as I mentioned. I believe he shot like forty two or forty three percent from three this season. So. Clay Thompson easily. Each one more really doesn't offer. Like he, he's exactly what I was just describing in terms of he's a shooter, and if his shot's not falling, you really can't play him because otherwise he's useless. So, um, Clay Thompson for sure in that matchup. Yeah, definitely. If you guys didn't get the idea from the last podcast we recorded, we're big Clay Thompson fans, and we really respect like his uh, demeanor and like how you can always count on him to be even keel and not get, and give you technical fouls. Like it's been you know, been a problem with uh, Kevin Durant this season. And yeah, like he's one of the best shooters ever. I don't think anyone would argue that he's at least in that conversation, much less all the way up there. And, and just addressing that point about like uh, great uh, shooters from the past, just the fact that they can even have similar efficiency, much less uh, better efficiency than players like Ray Allen and Larry Bird from the past when they're taking uh, twice and sometimes in some cases like Larry Bird where he's taking like free frees a game, like three or four times as many frees and still shooting them just as efficiently. I mean, that says a lot about uh, your true skill. And it doesn't take an AP stats whiz to know that. So, yeah, like, Clay Thompson is the obvious choice here. I, I'm not a big fan of each one more, more personally. I, I think he's the weak point in the Pelicans' uh, starting lineup. I think that they should probably try and get a better shooting guard, to be honest. So, yeah, yeah like, I mean, this is a no-brainer. 
And uh, just to save you guys from uh, another no-brainer, because there's really no point in talking about these no-brainer ones, uh, at small forward, we're both taking Kevin Durant. There's almost no conversation there. Is it against... Uh, Darius Miller, yeah. Darius Miller, yeah. Uh, yeah, Kevin Durant, I mean, second-best player in the league. I mean, debatably, I guess. Some people think he's first, some people think he's lower than that. But regardless of what it is, I think to everybody, he's at least top five. So, um, supremely talented. He, I, I feel like people are going to be able to make a case for him to be a top 10 player in NBA history when it's all said and done. Um, you know, depending on how they make their cases, because some people love the rings and all that stuff, and he might have a few. So, uh, Kevin Durant, definitely. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so then we can just get right into a power forward, and this one still isn't much of a competition, but at least we can talk about it, because it's interesting, because Miritich has played a lot better. We have uh, Draymond Green versus uh, Nikola Miritich, with uh, Draymond Green really being the defensive stopper for the Warriors, and uh, Nikola Miritich being a stretch four, and like a offensive, an offensive player that you can really rely on from the Pelicans. Yeah, see, the reason I think this matchup was so interesting, and the reason this is a matchup I was looking forward to entering this series is because... I figured that Anthony Davis would have a 10 times easier time inside uh, going in against the Warriors uh, because I figured that Draymond would be out, uh, you know, contesting Miritich. But, um, you know, credit to Draymond Green. He's showing that he can actually, he's, they were still rolling with him as a small ball center and they're actually playing him on Anthony Davis quite a bit because, you know, I'm pretty sure they're aware that they don't really have another choice because if you have Zaza on Anthony Davis, then he's probably going to be going for 40 and 20 every night. So, um, you know, uh, in the matchup particularly, I take Draymond Green just because, you know, he is an all-star and he, he does offer more to his team than Miritich does. Miritich is kind of in that in that realm of if he's really not shooting threes, then there's not really that much of a point of having him out there. He doesn't offer much of a playmaking or defensive factor, even though he's been playing good defensively lately. Um, I just don't think that you can have him guarding Draymond Green because Draymond Green is such a skilled playmaker. And so when his shot is falling, he's extremely dangerous. And then obviously he can, um, he you know he, he always makes other players better. And having to defend a playmaker like that is a challenge for a player like Meritich, um, not being a great defender himself. So uh, I'll take Draymond Green in that matchup. But uh, you know it, you're right; it is interesting because I figured that you know the, I feel like the Pelicans something that Alvin Gentry should think about is uh, running a, a four or five pick and roll or a pick and pop with yeah. Anthony. It was in Nikola Miritich to get uh, Draymond switched out onto Miritich so that he has to guard his inverse. Because you do have to respect Miritich's three because he can't shoot it from, he can shoot it very well and can shoot it from pretty deep as well. So, you know, having to go out there and guard him should uh, give Anthony Davis some freedom because there's literally nobody else on the Warriors roster aside from Draymond Green who has any, any, any defensive business even standing within five feet of Anthony Davis. Because, I mean, yeah, you can tell me all you want about how Kevin Durant is this great rim protector now, but he's. He's still frail thin, and Anthony Davis is going to plow him every time in the post if, if he gets the opportunity to. It's it's not even going to be close. So Draymond Green's the only player that stands a chance guarding Anthony Davis. Um, with anybody else, it's not even close. I remember watching a, a clip from Game 1 where he was on Clay Thompson, and Clay Thompson, even though he's a great defender, he's a great perimeter defender. There's no stopping Anthony Davis in the post unless you're Shaquille O'Neal in his prime. Yeah, no kidding. And yeah, I I think this one comes down to like the free categories of offense, really, because hey, obviously you have your five big box score uh, statistics, your points, your rebounds, your assists, your steals, your blocks, and I mean steals and blocks aren't really representative of true defense anyway. So I'm going to talk about those. But just in terms of uh, points, I think this it goes to uh, Miritich. He's a better offensive option. He's a more consistent offensive option. Like sure, Draymond Green can go hot for like a couple minutes or so and knock down a couple of frees. 
but usually he, he's either missing the freeze or like Steve Kerr's complaining and being like, oh, why are we giving Draymond Green the ball? We need to pass to Steph or uh, Clay or uh, Kevin Durant on those uh, situations. So I, I think that Nicole Mirotic wins in that. But I think Draymond Green uh, really uh, outperforms him in terms of assists. You can really count on him to uh, pass the ball around and really uh, help the Warriors' offense run when like they're passing it into the paint and then he can just pass it right back out to one of the other guards on the perimeter and like the defense is never prepared for that. So like that's a, always a good option for them. And then in terms of rebounds and defense, I think it goes to Draymond Green. So that one really uh, breaks the matchup for me. I think Miritich has been uh, really impressive in defense in the first round, actually. I, uh, he had my uh, play of the season, not the season, series, in the uh, uh, Trailblazers uh, Pelicans uh, series on one defensive play where he was just waving his arms all over the place and got a crazy steal. But, yeah, like I, I don't think he's been uh, anything that's better than Draymond Green just because Green has been one of the best players in the league at defense for the longest time, and it, it, I, I don't think he gets enough credit for his passing. He doesn't. I think it's very impressive, actually, um, that he is sort of like he, like, like he came really from from like out of nowhere. Like it's like he was he was drafted late in the second round in 2012, and here he is, and he's he's legitimately like he him and like he's the he's the like Steph Curry only leads this team in scoring, and it's it's by a very little margin because of you know obviously Kevin Durant's addition or everything like that. But you know even even in. Uh, in Steph Curry's MVP, uh, unanimous MVP season, uh, like Draymond Green was leading their team in assists and rebounding. Uh, he led the league in steals last year. Um, you know, he, he is a very underrated player, and I think he does get a lot of flack because of his attitude and the way that he approaches certain situations with the referees. But um, you know, you know, none of that can be used to diminish his talent. He's an amazing playmaker. He's an amazing decision maker. He's an amazing pick and roll player as a screen setter or as a as a popper. And um, and as a popper, I mean. And uh, you know he he's, his defensive intensity is always amazing. Uh, while I I still don't believe that he's a very good one on one defender, I think I think the brilliance in his defense comes on the fact that he is so smart defensively that he's he's literally always there when he needs to be. And like his he's in my opinion the best help defensive player by far. You know he always he's always watching the weak side. He's always making sure that um, you know that that the team has the hardest time scoring possible. And you know he, he's come up with clutch play defensively multiple times for the Warriors, so um, yeah, he's he's, a, he's he does deserve to be an all-star, even though he's, he might not be the scorer that some people expect, but you know, who knows, if maybe if he was in his own system, that he might actually be able to be a little bit of a scorer, because in games when no, one, when no one else has played, he's actually done a pretty decent job, so. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Okay, so that's that matchup, and then we have the obvious one again, the center position. Since we've been talking about Anthony Davis so much, I guess you guys can predict that Anthony Davis would win over uh, any center that the Warriors could put in. They could put in JaVale McGee, they could put in uh, Kevin Looney, they could put in uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Zaza. That's right. And they could even put any of the other uh, free centers that are apparently on the roster in, but none of them would make a difference against uh, Anthony Davis. He's the best center in the league. It's not really a competition. He's one of the best players in the league. He's one of the best scorers, one of the best rebounders, one of the best on defense. He's a really an incredible player, and uh, he even you know, like passing out. Uh, like we were talking about uh, Draymond Green's pa uh, passing ability, uh, Anthony Davis is, isn't on the same level, but it's still a plus from a center. And, like you can really count on him to initiate the offense, and if he wants to triple up the court or something, he's no Joel Embiid, but like he can competently do something like that. You know, I heard Stephen Jackson, a former Spurs player, compare Anthony Davis. 
Um, he called him an athletic version of Tim Duncan, who's simply not in as good a situation. And I think that's a little bit of a fair comparison, you know, because if you consider Duncan's defensive impact and the fact that he was able to score inside, um, you know, and then he, he obviously developed a little bit of an outside game with his, you know, his, uh, his bank shot and his passing out of the post. And, you know, uh, I was explaining this to a friend of mine the other day that, um, you know, how many assists you get is actually not indicative of how good of a playmaker you are necessarily no. because Tim Duncan, for example, can be, a, a, he was an excellent passer out of the post. He was always creating looks and opportunities and getting lots of hockey assists, you know, um, you know, after he went his back to the basket and doing all sorts of things like that. And, you know, he, he was an underrated playmaker, so he did a great job uh, throughout his career. And I think Anthony Davis is doing that as well, even though he doesn't average a lot of assists. Um, he, he is a very good passer and he does make the right decisions when he when he knows that he can't score. Hello. Oh, hi. Oh, yeah. Did you did you not hear me? Uh, no, I, I missed you for like 10 seconds there. Oh, oh, uh, what was the last thing you heard? Uh, you were finishing the, talking about Tim Duncan and how... Uh, oh, his uh, passing? Yeah, like yeah. I was just... Basically, I was just equating how like Anthony Davis does very similar things in terms of how he passes out of the post. Okay, yeah. Well, that's and getting he, cut. He's, he's an underrated passer is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so who do you think's been uh, doing the best at uh, center uh, just re uh, super recently for the Warriors, and like who should they be uh, rolling with? Well, honestly, I think the, the Warriors' best lineup, in my opinion, um, it really, to me, it would be Steph Curry at the point guard, Clay Thompson shooting guard, Andre Iguodala at small forward, Draymond Green at power. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Dray you could play Kevin Durant at small forward, Draymond Green at center. Wait, no, no, I had it right the first time. Steph, Clay, Iguodala, Kevin Durant, Draymond. Because even though the lineup is small, it's not small, like, it's not small in terms of length. Because Draymond Green is long, Clay Thompson is long, Iguodala is long, Durant is <laughs> obviously very long. And, you know, Durant can, he'll never have to defend Anthony Davis, which he, he like, he just won't have to. And I think Durant, even though he's not an excellent defender, in my opinion, I just, I think he can do a fine job containing Darius Miller or literally anybody else in the Pelicans roster. Because, you know, if he, as long as he's not guarding Drew Holiday, who's going to blow by him, and he's not guarding Anthony Davis, um, everyone on the Pelicans is, you know, susceptible to being defended by uh, Kevin Durant because, if he's on Nikola Miritich, for example, all he really has to do is scout his threes. He doesn't really have to worry about him putting the ball on the floor or anything like that. So um, I would roll with Steph, Clay, Iguodala, Durant, and Draymond. Uh, not as my starting five, because I do think that at the start of the game, you do need more size, kind of just make it so that Anthony Davis can't get so comfortable immediately. But for for the majority of what they do, I, I think the Warriors' best lineup and you know their quote-unquote death lineup when they won in 2015 and, you know, when they were so successful in 2016 was the exact lineup that I just mentioned, except it was Harrison Barnes instead of Kevin Durant. So obviously now that you have Kevin Durant, you, yeah, obviously that is, that's just a much better team. And even though Andre Iguodala isn't the same as he was in 2015 and 2016, he's not as good as he was. He's not athletic as he was. Um, he, he can still be a very important player. And, you know, Steve Kerr, has a lot of trust in him to kind of be like an on-court coach um, and just in terms of getting the game plan across. And, you know, even though he's not a great three-point shooter, he can hit him if he's wide open. And he always makes the smart play. He doesn't, like, even though he doesn't, even though he's not physically capable of always doing some things that he was 
able to do before. He's definitely, he, in my opinion, he's probably the smartest player on their team. He just always has, um, he, he just, he's just always so aware of the play that needs to be made. And he's always like on top of things. And he's always, uh, you know, quarterbacking both the defense and the offense, telling people where they need to be. And, you know, even though he's not like some sort of, you know, virtuoso passer, he, he's definitely capable of running an offense. He's a very good, uh, he's a good, like, you know, similar to what we were just saying about Anthony Davis and Tim Duncan. It's like, he's a forward who doesn't really generate a lot of assists, but is still capable of being a good passer and generating a good offense. So, um, you know, having Iguodala out there in spurts gives kind of a relief. It doesn't make it so that Draymond or Steph constantly have to be creating plays for everybody. It gives them a third playmaker. Um, and even Durant can do that as well. So, um, I think, you know, the more high IQ, <clears throat> the more high IQ players that you have on the floor, I don't think that's ever going to be a detriment to your team. So I would just, that would be the lineup that I play for the majority of, you know, like the, the most important stretch of the game, probably, you know, 25 to 30 minutes, I would play those five players because I just don't think that Zaza is going to be able to have any sort of positive impact. I don't think Jordan Bell is capable. I don't think he's skilled enough at this point in his career. Uh, even though Kevon Looney is playing okay, I don't think that he's, I don't think he's playoff tested enough to the point where you can have him play in such important games yet. And that's kind of the same way I feel about, you know, Damian Jones and all these other people that they have on their roster. So um, I would just go with kind of similar to how Cleveland is just rolling with the best players and the most experienced players that they have. I think that's Golden State's best bet to get a quick series because, you know, the Warriors are so talented to the point where even if they don't play their best five players all at all times, you know, they're going to be able to win the series. But I think it, you know, Iguodala and all these guys have such a mental advantage over a Pelicans team that's so inexperienced that I believe having them out there will allow the series to be finished for them as quickly as possible. And, you know, getting this done in five games would be really helpful for them um, because, you know, it looks like Houston's probably going to have a quick series as well. And you want to be well-rested to have to play them. You wouldn't want to have a long series. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't want to yeah, speak, speak too soon about uh, Houston. Obviously, it's just been one game, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah so, like it, so far, but you're right. It could definitely change. Obviously, you know, we, we talk about we spent a good time talking about the importance of Rudy Gobert. So, you know, maybe he can take Harden out of that series, kind of like he did with Westbrook. So, yeah, we'll that, see how that would be nice and definitely. We'll out, and then maybe we'll get to the finals, and then we'll face LeBron, and then maybe you can take out LeBron, and then maybe Rudy Gobert will be Finals MVP. But <laughs> yeah, we'll get there when we get there. Yeah, well, that, that would be amazing, of course. Uh, yeah, I, I, so I guess we should get into the bench then. So this one doesn't really seem like much of a competition, to be honest. In a field that's crowded with uh, teams that have really good benches, the Pelicans really don't. Like the only the only real good player coming off the bench for them is uh, Rajon Rondo, and then they uh, Jordan Clarkson is a on on again off again player. And well, you mean Crawford? Oh uh, no, uh, maybe I did. Maybe I just wrote down Clarkson and shouldn't have. Yeah, Jordan Clarkson about Cleveland. Okay, yeah. So yeah, Jordan Crawford, and uh, while some people will probably say uh, Ian Clark is good just because he was on the 2015 Warriors, he's he's not that good. He he was terrible in uh, Game One on defense. So yeah, uh, even though the Warriors bench has declined, like I just said, they're they're all battle tested and high IQ players who will always figure something out, even if they physically can't do as much as they used to. I mean, you've got Sean Livingston, you've got Iguodala on the bench, you've got. Um, David West, who for some reason can still play very well yes. in situations for whatever reason, is he's really unstoppable from like 16 to like like 14 to 18 feet. David West mid range jumpers 
are consistently cash. I, I don't know what it is about him, but he's always capable of making that shot and knocking it down consistently without fail. So you've got him there. You've just got a bunch of experienced, savvy veterans. You've got Nick Young, who's, I don't even, I think people have forgotten that he's even on that team. But I mean, Nick Young, despite the fact that he kind of has a, you know, he's, he has an interesting reputation around the league. He's, he's close to, a, I think he's a 40% close to a 40% three-point shooter for the Warriors. He's no he's no slouch from three. Um, so, I mean, the Warriors just have shooting depth experience on their bench. It's just, they've got playmaking, intelligence. Like, they've, they've really got, they've got mid-range game. They've got three-point shooting. I mean, they really don't have any, like, it, it's it's interesting because, it, 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 to me, it, it kind of speaks to Steve Kerr's system. And, you know, the similarities between it and Brad Stevens is that, like, Brad Stevens' system is that even though like Brad Stevens' team is surrounded, it, it's it's filled with high IQ players who just understand the system. So that even though there's a talent drop off when the starters go to the bench, and you know the six men and seven men and eight men and all these guys, even though they come off the bench and don't have the same amount of talent as the first unit, they still play with the same mentality. They're coached the same way, and they you know they run the same sets and they do the same things to get easy looks so that they don't have to rely on talent and. I think that's a that's one of the that's one of the things that I think makes the Warriors so great and that's that separates them from being you know like other dynasties that we've seen in the past because you know when you look at when you look at a dynasty like like the Miami and you, I don't even necessarily consider it a dynasty but when you look at their run and their four finals appearances like you really like you you can look at it and even though Spolster was a good coach you can kind of tell that that team relied on the fact that it was extremely talented to win as much as they did and ultimately I think that's why they didn't win as much as they should have. But then you look at situations like the Warriors, for example. They've been consistently great for even since they, they were very good even before they had Steve Kerr. But since they've had Steve Kerr, they've been on another level. And I think that's because they play in such a way that there's it's really not about their talent. It's more about how they play and that anybody is able to succeed and thrive in, in that um, just in different ways. So um, just ultimately because of the Warriors system and Steve Kerr in general, I think that um, you know the Warriors bench has a distinct advantage. Yeah, I definitely agree. And uh, one point that uh, I'd like to highlight myself is uh, the value of Quinn Cook coming off the bench, enough so that they actually cut Omer Osix, uh coming into the playoffs. And he, he was doing oh, not, not that great, to be honest. He wasn't shooting any frees. He was mostly just a cutter to the basket the entire time. But Quinn Cook, uh, coming out off of a two-way contract, he made the team. And he's been a real hypo player from uh, free. And uh, when they haven't had Steph Curry and they need to go to someone on the bench, he's been a real hypo uh, replacement to the replacement which is something that a lot of teams can't say, specifically uh, Boston, from what they can get from Shane Larkin. And, yeah, like, he's you know, been a valuable player alongside David West, obviously, in the post, and then Andrea Iguodala. He can you know, make sure that the offense is running smoothly, at the very least. And then, obviously, they've got the whole uh, mob of centers that are coming in, and they can always be valuable. I saw Jordan Bell make an excellent play in the, in the uh, game one of the series, so... Who knows, maybe he'll be an impact player, probably not, but whatever. Okay. So, I, I believe that we have to go with Steve Kerr for the better coach in this series, but, I mean, he's not doing much either. Yeah, I mean, I agree. But like, also, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, actually, but, I mean, Alvin Gentry was actually an assistant coach on the yes. 2015 Warriors Championship team, so, I mean, I really feel like just right there kind of spells an advantage because it's like, Alvin Gentry is always going to be kind of, in, even subconsciously in the back of his mind, just using stuff that Steve Kerr has taught him. 
Um, yeah. And Steve Kerr, like, just probably just knows him, like, better than Alvin Gentry knows Steve Kerr, in my opinion, because, like, you know, he was, he worked beneath Kerr. So, um, and I mean, Steve Kerr, you, like, I, he gets a lot of, like, like, while I agree, like, he does not deserve as much credit as he receives sometimes because he does have a surplus of talent. It's, I mean, at the same time, it's, you know, it's not like, it's not like it's easy to, you know, coach that many stars all the time. Like, you know, it, it requires something. I'm not exactly sure if I would say it's difficult necessarily, but it, it requires something. It requires, you know, having to know when to just defer to your stars. And, you know, Steve Kerr, one thing that I will say is he does have an excellent understanding of his players. Like, it's never like, like, I've never once, like, you see Teron Lue and LeBron argue frequently. You see Teron Lue hollering on the sidelines sometimes. Like, you never see that with Steve Kerr. Like, you only ever see Steve Kerr yelling at the referees when he's upset with them. Um, you know, or, like, whenever you see him interacting with his team, like, he, he's calm, he's collected, he doesn't yell at them, he doesn't scold them. Like, he really kind of allows the players to all do that to each other, and that's kind of what Draymond's role is. And, um, you know, he's really done a great job kind of extending his coaching into his team, and for that reason, I feel like he is actually a pretty good coach. Um, you know, he's not, he, he, he shouldn't be getting any comparisons to players, you know, to coaches like Terry Stotts and Brad Stevens, who, you know, they have to shoulder so much of a load because of a lack of talent and they have to, you know, kind of demand excellence in such a way that it actually gets executed. Steve Kerr doesn't necessarily have to do that because his players are good enough to the point where their execution will always be very good. But Steve Kerr himself is, you know, he's a good, he's a good, like, He's just a good guy, I guess I would say, to the point where, like, you know, even when, like, he, when he's, his message always gets through. Like, it's never like his players will listen to something he says and just be like, oh, no, screw that. I'm just going to go do this instead because I think it's right. Like, he has a very good control over his team, and I don't think Alvin Gentry has that same thing. I feel like Alvin Gentry is more prone to a situation where Anthony Davis might say something like, oh, no, I can't run that play. Like, just give me the ball and get out of the way. Like, I can do this. Um, I don't think that the Warriors would have any sort of, you know, kind of, small clash like that. I just feel like there's more consistency. Um, and I mean, also Steve Kerr is just proven at a high level. I mean, you can say whatever you want about how it's, you know, how he just has a bunch of talent, but he does have two NBA championships. He did coach part of a 73 and nine regular season. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, there's Luke Walton, but, um, you know, I, I give the edge to Steve Kerr. Just, I mean, also simply because of the fact that Alvin Gentry has never given me a reason to think that he's actually that good of a coach. I mean, this team has underachieved for a long time, even, you know, when they've had Drew Holiday and Anthony Davis in the past, and they really weren't playing that well with DeMarcus Cousins and uh, Anthony Davis. So that kind of shows me that he might not have that same ability to know how to stagger minutes and all those sorts of things. So, Yeah, yeah. so I think it's a very good point, honestly, that uh, Steve Kerr is very good at managing the personalities of his players. You always see a bunch of op-eds throughout the season where they're like, oh, is Draymond Green going to blow up the Warriors, and is he going to leave because – he's a big fireball or whatever, and like, oh, is uh, Stephen Curry actually too big of an egotist to make the team work, and ooh, Kevin Durant's been getting a lot of technicals this season, is he gonna uh, start causing problems for the team, and like, you just constantly see those going around, but they never actually affect, A, the play on the uh, court, and also just the you know, stuff that's coming out from the players in the media, and like, that's a big thing, because like, you see uh, on a bunch of other teams, like, dysfunction, where like, the players are either gonna be a uh, uh, having problems with each other, as something like uh, Miritich uh, getting punched in the face by Poppy Portis comes to mind on the polls prior to the season. Uh, that's an extreme example, but still, like you see that kind of stuff from other teams, but you never see that from the Warriors. Or heck, uh, if you want to go back to another Warriors example, uh, 
uh, PJ Carlissimo uh, basically getting uh, told he's uh, he's going to get killed by uh, what's his name uh, Latrell Sprewell back in like 2007 or so. Like it's it's not like these kinds of things don't happen in the NBA. It's just that Steve Kerr is very good at managing his players and like he's a he he is a good uh, players coach and I, I think that's not something he gets a lot of credit for and. Like, he's not going to detract for on the play-calling side because he knows what he's doing there. It's just he's not as good as some of the other coaches. Yeah, he does have a, you know, but he has a little bit of an advantage having played under Popovich for a while, so he understands some things. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so there's that. So I, I think it's uh, pretty obvious how the Warriors are going to win this series. They get the expected production out of their best players. Stephen Curry comes back and obviously came back in Game 2 last night, and... He uh, looks, if not normal, then like 90% or so. He's knocking down his freeze. He's uh, doing all that. And, you know, Clay Thompson keeps up his uh, dominant play on offense and defense. Kevin Durant doesn't uh, slack off. And uh, Draymond Green just keeps uh, playing as he has to. And really, if those four players just do what they have to do, I think that the Warriors aren't going to have too uh, much of a problem in the series. I could see if everyone, just, everyone else just fell apart. The series going like six games, but... That's really it. And then for the Pelicans, they they have a lot more that they have to do. So they have to get Stephen Curry to uh, have some serious problems when he comes back. He's got to be rusty. He's got to look like he did in that uh, in some stretches of that uh, Thunder series uh, in 2015-2016. He's got to uh, uh, make it seem like he's he he's got to not be hampered at all, basically, by the Warriors' defense. He has to be scoring like 40 points a game. He has to have an incredible series, and then also they got to keep up the production from Drew Holiday, keep up the production from Miritich, and, you know, basically get Rajon Rondo to average like 20 assists if they want a chance to really win this series. So, yeah, they need a lot. Yeah, that's for sure. Yep. Okay, so personally what I'm most excited to see now that uh, Steph Curry's back is to see the matchup between him and Drew Holiday and how that plays out throughout the games, because... Obviously, Drew Holiday being one of the best defenders in the league, and then Steph Curry being the best shooter ever. It, I think it's going to be very interesting to see, even if uh, he's not playing at 100%. Yeah, Steph Curry. I mean, this is this is an absurd stat about Steph Curry. He played his first game since March yesterday, and Kevin Durant in the game was, I think he was minus 5. Steph Curry was plus 26 in his first game. Wow. Like, like, and I understand that plus minus is not always indicative of that many, but like, he was, like, it wasn't close. Like, it, like, it, he was plus 26, and like, and then it was like, I think Draymond was like plus one, and Clay might have been like plus three, and Durant was negative because I guess he was on the court and, you know, wasn't defending AD properly or whatever it was. But like, it, Steph Curry in limited minutes, he played 28 minutes and he was plus 26. That's absurd. And he had 20. Eight points, I think, twenty-seven points, twenty-six points, whatever it was. And his first playback, he enters, he curls around the screen, and he hits a wide-open three, and he splashes it. Like I, I was just, you know, I really didn't like Steph Curry in two thousand sixteen because, like, it, it was kind of like to this thing where it was like he was, it was like he was single-handedly like, he was taking away the element of having a close competitive game because of how dominant he was from outside the three-point yeah. line. Like he, he, there, there was no such thing as watching like, for, uh, basically up until the Warriors got to like their last like twenty games, like there was no such thing as watching a competitive Warriors game, and then like you know then you had that one game where it was like oh like 
finally a relevant big loss for the Warriors. And then he goes and hits that half court three against Oklahoma City when Kevin Durant was still on the team. And like, I mean, it's crazy what he does. Like, it's he's really just it, it's weird to me. Like, I, I don't understand why more people like why more players in the NBA don't make a more concerted effort to become like that. Like, I, I don't know why they don't just repetitively practice their shot making because, like, you see the kind of success that it warrants for him. Like, he, he literally, like, he, he, he just stands outside and he can shoot, like, all day. And, like, he doesn't he doesn't have to drive to the rim if he didn't want to. I mean, he does, luckily, because he's, you know, he's a relatively versatile offensive player and all that. But, like, it, it's just, you know, and obviously he does have some influence and all that. So, I mean, yeah, he, he's, he's insane. You can't even, like, 5 of 10 from 3 in his first game back. Plus twenty six and twenty seven minutes and twenty eight points, or you know some some assortment of those three numbers twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight. He's crazy. Yeah, and hopefully he, he can keep that up. Obviously, it's never fun to have injuries, and even if it's on the Mayo, what is uh, likely the most talented team ever. So you know, uh, let's hope that the team at least doesn't lose because of injuries. Cause that's never fun. Okay, so uh, what's your prediction for the series? For me, I have uh, Warriors in five. Yeah, I mean, I, prior to this series beginning, I had Warriors in six, but now I'll probably double down on Warriors in five simply because like it, it just doesn't look like they have any sort of answer for for the machine that they are. <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting as well because like you know going into the postseason as usual, there were so many people asking questions and like because last year was kind of a, for, a foregone conclusion that the whole season was just waiting for the Warriors to be hoisting the championship, but this season it was kind of like oh yeah like they're, they're not actually going to win this year and. You know, they, they've kind of, it, it's weird how they've gone under the radar to the point where it's like they actually might not win the championship. But, I mean, watching them again and seeing them engaged and fully healthy again, I mean, it really doesn't look like anybody can compete with them. Um, hopefully yeah. Houston can give them something. But, I mean, even when you watch Houston versus when you watch them, it's just not even close to the same thing. Like, you just don't see the type of two-way play from Houston that you do from Golden State because, like, you do see similar shooting from just random guys. But at the end of the day, like, Golden State's shooting is coming from superstar players like Klay Thompson, Steph Curry, and Kevin Durant. And then, like, it's just not the same thing when that's when that becomes, you know, Eric Gordon, Gerald Green, and Luke and Bob Mute. Yep. And uh, really, the only, the only big advantage, and we'll get to this more if the Western Conference Finals just play out this way, like it looks like it might. But, yeah, like, the biggest advantage the Rockets have is their bench and just the unlimited amount of three-point shots they can hoist up. But the problem for both teams, obviously, is what happens if uh, your star players go cold. And it, it seems like the Warriors are more at risk for that right now just because they're relying more on a, a select few players. And uh, while the Rockets' defense has been incredible in a lot of uh, different uh, games in the regular season, it can go on and off. And obviously James Harden can have his good defensive nights and he can have his really bad defensive nights where he's just not trying and in the playoffs, it does seem like he uh, puts in a lot more effort, but it, it, we'll see. Like, it, it's just going to be a fascinating series, and I, I don't think anyone would uh, predict it not to be uh, seven games if it does happen that way. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, – I really feel like Houston's the only chance of actually getting anywhere. I, mean, I, I feel like Houston can, is capable of beating Golden State because – simply because I don't I, – I feel like to, there there's comes a point where, like, even though you're so good – it, the, the rest of the league eventually just catches up, like no matter what it is. And whether that be this year or next year, like I just don't think that the Warriors are so untouchable anymore to the point where it's like people can't catch up. Like 
the NBA has now had like three, you know, two, three good years of watching the Warriors and, and be able to catch up with them. And, you know, Daryl Morey was kind of the first guy to like, to, he was the first GM to specifically tackle the task of, like, we're going to build a perfect 2018 NBA team so that we can take down the Warriors, which is what he did. Like, he just went all in the analytics with it. And he just said, you know, threes are better than twos. Three and D is the whole way to play. Threes and layups all the way. We're just going to surround an amazing playmaker, get him another playmaker. So we have pristine playmaking for all 48 minutes of the game. We have a Hall of Flame point guard on the floor for all 48 minutes, which no other team has. And we're just going to surround them with shooters so that we can always score threes and just hope that they always knock them down. It's just the, the weird thing with Houston is that, like, you expect you expect them to have, like, you, you expect them to be, like, it's like if they don't make threes, they lose. But that's just not the case because even when they're not making threes as a team, like, Harden collectively as an individual can go off and carry the team for a scoring performance of 44 points like we saw in game one against Minnesota. The team as a whole only scored 104 points, and they were very, very cold from three. I think they shot like maybe 19, 20% or something like that, and they still ended up winning the game because, you know, Houston went on two 17-game winning streaks, I think, this year, and one 14-game winning streak. And yeah. in the first 17-game winning streak, they played at the fastest pace in the league, and then at the, in the second 17-game winning streak, they played at the third slowest pace in the league. So they're actually able to play both fast and slow. So, you know, they can kill you in half court, in a half court sense, because Harden is an amazing isolation player. Chris Paul is an amazing isolation player. They have a guy with a nickname is Iso Joe on their bench now. I don't think he's going to be getting significant playoff minutes, but the fact that they have him can just help a half court offense. Um, and, you know, then you, you have, you know, you, you can run a pick and roll with Clint Capella in the half court set. And then obviously you have transition threes, which are a specialty for them. You have a good rim runner in Clint Capella. You have athletic players like Joe Green. Um, you know, they're a very well-rounded team. I, I don't think they get enough credit. And I, I think because of that, you know, if you can catch the Warriors having, you know, maybe two cold nights in a series, you could beat them because you, I, I, I think straight up, like, assuming they, assuming the Warriors played a perfect series, or not a perfect series, but assuming the Warriors played a really good series, I still think Houston is good enough to get two games off of them at least. So I think Houston is definitely going to have to hope that they can play some stellar three-point defense and get the Warriors cold for one or two nights so that they can actually take the series. But regardless, I think, I'll put it this way, I think Golden State has a much easier chance of winning the series in five games than Houston does of winning it in six or seven. Yeah, and of course we we don't want to look over uh, Houston's current matchup. That Oh, the Jazz, yeah, of course. I'm just saying hypothetically. No, 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 of course. I, I mean, if they don't, then there's really an issue with James Harden and Chris Paul in the postseason. If they, if they, I mean, Chris Paul would still have never played in a conference finals, which to me would be absurd. Yeah. No, no worries. It was more of a segue than anything. So, <laughs> Good. so uh, of course, the Jazz, uh, unfortunately, they're going to be uh, missing R- Ricky Rubio for at least the first, game, for, first four games, it looks like, if not more. So he's not really a factor in the series for uh, quite a while. So uh, they just have to... Uh, who, who are they rolling with at uh, point guard? I didn't actually check. Uh, I believe it is... Uh, I think they're doing something weird. They're playing a... Uh... They're playing some guy whose last name is his name is R O'Neal. Like his first name is R. Oh yeah. Last O'Neal. And they're playing him, I think, at the two, and they're playing Donovan Mitchell, I think, at the at the one. So I think they're going Donovan, O'Neal, Ingles, Favors, Gobert. Okay. Do you want to uh, pretend that uh, Donovan Mitchell is actually playing the shooting guard just for purposes of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, we can have it. That's fine. Okay. So uh, I guess we'll get into the positional matchups for the Rockets versus Jazz series. Uh, I, I know at least I'm watching the Rockets Jazz game too. Are you, are you watching that? 
I am not at the moment. Oh, okay. I'll put it on in a moment. Uh, you don't have to. I was just checking. Uh, okay, so for the point guard matchup, this one's going to be a cakewalk. So, uh, again, we probably don't have to talk about it. We have uh, Chris Paul versus uh, R. O'Neal, whoever that is. He made a couple of good frees, but he, he's really just a complete nobody, and Chris Paul's the pretty uh, pretty much the best point guard ever in terms of just being a pure point guard. I mean, uh, Winchers per 48 minutes backs that up. Per 36 minutes also backs that up. His uh, defense backs that up. His uh, stealing ability alone backs that up. And, like, he's just pretty much the best uh, point guard ever. It's not really much of an argument. You can say, ooh, John Stockton, but Stockton didn't do much. So, yeah. John Stockton really, I mean, he accumulated... He's the all-time steals leader, but he was a horrible defender individually. No, I don't think he ever made an all-defensive team. Yeah. So that's pretty telling, right there. So yeah. Paul made nine, and he's led the league in NBA records six times. But yeah. Anyways, um, Chris Paul for sure. I mean, I really I don't even know R. O'Neal's first name. The <laughs> fact that calling him R. O'Neal is is telling enough. Um, yeah, I mean, Chris Paul, he's a, I don't even know R. O'Neal, and I can tell you right off the bat, he's a better scorer, playmaker, defender, rebounder, passer. Uh, and I think Chris Paul is probably the best to assist a turnover ratio guy in the league, so, or ever, actually. So um, I don't think, I think for his career, he averages under three turnovers. I think it's like 2.4 turnovers, which is absurd. So, yeah, Chris Paul for sure. Okay. Yep. So that's our uh, point guard one. And unfortunately, the shooting, one, uh, shooting guard, uh, Position isn't going to be much closer, even though uh, our, our friend Donovan Mitchell is uh, still pretty good. Uh, we have uh, James Harden versus Donovan Mitchell, so the presumptive MVP at this point versus uh, the unfortunately presumptive uh, Rookie of the Year. Um, yeah, I've got, I mean, Harden, like, uh, Mitchell's great and all, but, I mean, we have already discussed how, I mean, we, we've already talked about how uh, Mitchell is really not the most important player on their team. He's just the best scorer on their team. So, yeah. uh, Don, I mean, James Harden's just much more complex player. He's a better shooter. He's a better passer. He's a better rebounder. And, you know, uh, <laughs> this is weird to say in a James Harden sentence, but James Harden is actually a better defender than Donovan Mitchell. Yes. Donovan Mitchell is a rookie, and he doesn't have any sort of conscience of playing defense and doesn't know how to properly stay in front of a guy. And I don't think I've ever seen him block a shot since I've watched a Utah Jazz game. So, uh, yeah, Harden is actually doing a pretty good job in blocks this year. I think he's averaging 0. 0.7. <laughs> yeah. Just for a shooting guard. So, and considering he is only 6'5, uh, I say only, but like 6'5 relative to how big other players in the NBA are nowadays, uh, it's not that big. So, he's doing a good job. Uh, so, I've got Harden for sure. He's He actually has had a stellar season. I think you can make an argument uh, that he established himself as being the best guard in the NBA this season. Some people will obviously disagree and just be like, oh, Steph Curry 3's deeper shooting range. But, I mean, you know, in my opinion, Harden's a better isolation player, rebounder, uh, passer, defender, even though cause Steph Curry's no good defender himself. So, you know, I think, you know, it's hard to compare a rookie to the best guard in the league. So. Yeah. And or one, if, at worst, one of the best guards. Yeah, I mean, James Harden would uh, be better than any shooting guard in the league if you uh, put him up against them. So, I... I mean, Donovan Mitchell just stands no chance, but I'm really curious for this next matchup because this one's incredibly tight, honestly. I think it comes down to uh, how much you've been paying attention to the Rockets player. Uh, we have uh, at small forward Trevor Ariza versus uh, Joe Ingles. So for me, this one's really close because uh, Joe Ingles obviously is one of the best uh, free-point shooters in the league, 
and it's hard to tell how good on def at defense he is because obviously the Jazz are very good uh, defense overall, so his uh, overall defense can be brought up, but the same thing is the case for Trevor Ariza. So Trevor Ariza is also a fantastic uh, three-point shooter. He, I, I, I feel like he uh, goes under the radar on that, but he's one of the best free and D players in the league. Even in the seasons when the Rockets haven't had good overall team defense, he's been a fantastic defender. So, I I think it's uh, I think it has to go to Trevor Ariza honestly, just because I don't trust the fact that Joe Ingles would be as good on defense if he was on a crappy defensive team. Plus, I think that Trevor Ariza gets like the slightest of edges, maybe in passing ability, but I don't even know to be honest. Well, I mean, here's what I'll say. I I think that while Joe Ingles is a fantastic player. I really feel like if he was anywhere else, he'd, he, I mean, he's really just a spot-up shooter. Um, also, his, I mean, this is kind of unrelated to how good they are as players, but I, I feel like it's important considering what their roles are. It, it takes Joe Ingles a very, very long time to get off his three-point shot, whereas Trevor Reza is very, very quick to fire from the corners. Um, so that, that for that reason, I, I just feel like Trevor Reza has more like capability of being effective simply because, like, with a defender on him, he's never going to have an issue getting up a shot, whereas Joe Ingles, I don't think, is capable of taking a contested jump shot because of how slow his release is. Um, he like, brings it up to his face and flattens his left hand and shoots it in front of his face from above his head. Um, it's a very strange-looking jump shot. But, and, and just like what you said, uh, Trevor Reza is, in my opinion, you know, he's, he doesn't rank... Like it, when you're ranking the three and D players, obviously you've got like Clay Thompson up and above everybody. But you know, uh, when you get down to the lower tiers, Trevor Ariza is is right there at the top. So um, I just feel Trevor Ariza. And also another thing, um, th this might not be that relevant, but yeah, I just think it's something to point out. Trevor Ariza um, is an NBA champion. Uh, you know, I, I'm not. He wasn't like a like a reason they won the championship or anything. But he, you know, he does have that playoff tested battle experience. And, I just feel like he's less likely to get rattled in big situations because, you know, he has, he's witnessed it and he's been in big games before. And he's also just been on this Houston team, which is experienced. And um, I just feel like they're, they as a collective unit are playing with much more confidence and they have absolutely nothing to fear. Whereas Utah is kind of going into this as a new, like, oh, wow, like we, we just got past a Thunder team with three potential Hall of Famers. And, you know, we're just in this moment and we're led by a rookie. I just, I don't think Houston has to answer any of those same questions. Houston is, is really kind of just there and understands that we have to just win this series so we can get to win a championship, whereas Utah is, is, is probably kind of looking at it in terms of if we win the series, that's just a great accomplishment for us. So, um, you know, based on their mentalities and just the fact that uh, it'll take Ingles a longer time to actually get his shot off, and because I think Ariza is a better individual defender, I'll give a slight edge to Trevor Ariza, but not to take anything away from Joe Ingles. He's one of the most fascinating players in the playoffs thus far. He's been playing amazing, and his jump shot is not is not – a good-looking jump shot by any means, but it is a very good jump shot. It goes in almost all the time uh, when I'm watching him play. And I, I still can't forget the fact that he drained four straight in Paul George's face and stared him in the eyes after the fourth. So yeah, it was um, great. Slight edge to Trevor Reason. Okay, yeah, I, I I think that's fair, obviously. So okay, this uh, this next one actually is going to be interesting because they don't do the same things at all. So for the Rockets, we have uh, Ryan Anderson, who's uh, notoriously uh, uh, stretch four. When I say stretch four, I mean he stretches out to the half court basically and just knocks down any freeze that you'll give him. But he doesn't really do anything else. And then you have uh, Derek Favors, who uh, mainly plays in the post, and he uh, gives you awesome defense, as we saw in the first round series against the Thunder. 
but he definitely isn't a stretch four, and his uh, passing ability is uh, dubious at best. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go with Favors regardless because I just feel like he can be more impactful. I feel like Ryan Anderson's easily replaceable by any shooter in the lineup, and I feel like they're not kind of more they're they're being more favorable for PJ Tucker anyway because of his defensive ability, and and I think Houston realizes that you know Chris Paul is a very good defender, but he's still undersized, so you have to have some some defensive presence who can switch onto the more talented perimeter offensive players, and PJ Tucker allows for that. So. Um, you know, uh, Ryan Anderson, I think by this point is really just, you know, he's just stuck from those weird spots on the wings where he's shooting and his hands end up looking like an airplane after he's done shooting. So, um, you know, Derek Favors is, he, he had a fantastic first round series. He's a more skilled player all around, in my opinion, he, you know, rebounding, scoring inside, as you mentioned, and defense. So just those three elements alone would, would, uh, would get me to favor Derek Favors over Ryan Anderson. Yeah, any chance I can, I'll take uh, really good defense over uh, just three-point shooting. You, there's so many players in the league right now can, that can uh, just shoot the free, and we were talking about the value to an individual team. Uh, Ryan Anderson is on t- a team that every single player on the roster except for Clint Capella can knock down a three-point shot, so it's not that valuable to just be really good at uh, knocking down a three-pointer from uh, 40 feet out. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and, and plus I don't know anything about his passing ability, and I know that he's not a good defender, so that's not yeah. good. And it, just the fact that, like, uh, Derek Favors, he was doing so much to help Rudy Gobert in that Thunder series, like, it, 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 yeah, because, like, when we were talking about what's going to happen if uh, on, like, a uh, pick-and-roll, uh, Rudy Gobert gets uh, drawn out to, like, the key or, like, the three-point line, and, like, how are they going to defend the rim at that point? Like, we were talking about how that would be a key strategy for the Thunder, and then, like, it was it was solved by Derek Favors just occupying the space that uh, was open when uh, Rudy Gobert got drawn out, and it didn't end up being too much of a problem, and the Jazz won for it. Yeah. All right. So now we have the center position, and if we were just going to go off of the performance in Game 1, I think it would be Clint Capella, just because uh, Rudy Gobert did not have a good defensive game. He kind of just... Got his butt handed to him against Clint Capella in the first game. Luckily, though, we know that small sample size is irrelevant and that Rudy Gobert will play better defense in the second game, as we've already seen. And that Clint Capella, while he is a top five center in the league, he's ultimately a plug and play player and benefits from having two of the best ball handlers in NBA history passing to him. And yeah, like it just seems like Rudy Gobert does more. Yeah, I mean, Rudy Gobert. <laughs> Far, I mean, it's a close matchup, but I mean, Rudy Gobert is a defensive player of the year, regardless. Um, even though he didn't, he didn't have as stellar of a game as we would have liked in Game One from him. I just think that overall, he is more skilled than Clint Capella, and that he's less reliant on the players around him. Whereas Clint Capella really has, uh, he he really does need to be spoon fed a lot in terms of his baskets, and uh, you know, um, Rudy Gobert does not need that on offense while still being better defensively. So simply because he's better defensively and often and is more skilled offensively, you know, he can. He, he's he's more capable of seeing a play, I think, for himself rather than just being told where to be. So for that reason, I give Rudy Gobert an edge. And, and I mean, also, and like his defensive, like Clint Capella is doing amazing on defense. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, Rudy Gobert, I think, though, I think the only player in the league who's even comparable to Rudy Gobert in terms of a paint defender is Joel Embiid because you know of his switchability and athleticism and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, yeah, I would agree uh, with that good. as well. Okay, uh, just just so I uh, can be fair to anyone who uh, would want to complain about this, uh, would would you still take uh, Derek Favors over uh, PJ Tucker if they were match up matched up? 
Uh, I would. I mean, PJ Tucker is, is, is just a three and D player. He doesn't really offer that much. Um, even, I mean, I, I can't, uh, this is like just a, like a generic argument for me is like, this is just something stamped in my brain. It's like, I can't think that you're better than somebody just because you're better at less things. Like, it's like, like, like it really like, you know, just, just for example, right? Like I can't think that Kevin Durant is better than LeBron when, you know, LeBron is almost as good of a scorer, if not a better scorer, and then a better rebounder and passer and defender throughout his prime. And, but then there are people who think Kevin Durant is better because he's a better scorer and shooter. Like, to me, that doesn't make sense. Like, you can't be worse than someone if you're better at more things. So, for the same reason, Derek Favors is better inside, better rebounder, better defender. Um, and P.J. Tucker is just a shooter and defender, just like every like so many other players in the league. So, uh, for that reason, I, I think I would favor Derek Favors. Okay. And, Unintended. <laughs> Alright, good. I just want to make sure. Okay, so for the bench, I I think it's uh, I think it has to go to the Rockets ultimately. Uh, well, we both like the the Jazz bench uh, quite a bit. The Rockets it is just all free and D players and or or just yeah, players that can knock down frees because obviously you have Ryan Anderson as well, and like the, just the frees are never ending. You have uh, Lukumba Mute. You have. Uh, Eric Gordon, you have uh, Nene, who's uh, who actually I've seen uh, knock down a couple frees with the Wizards, so even he has some ability with that. You have Gerald Green, obviously. You have uh, uh, Ryan Anderson if he's coming off the bench for uh, P.J. Tucker. You have uh, who else? I'm trying to think if there's uh, anyone else I'm missing. I don't think so. And then that's just compared to uh, more limited production for the Jazz from uh, players like uh, Fabio Cephalosha, Alec Burks, uh, Jay Crowder, who's <laughs> been knocking down a ton of frees himself. Uh, Ryle Nito's been giving basically nothing, so, you know, same with uh, Jonas Shrepko. Yeah, he, he was yeah, he was Brad Stevens carried all the way, Jonas Shrepko. Yes. I actually thought he was a good player. Yeah, yeah, Brad Stevens does that a lot to people. He did that to Kyrie Irving as well. Yeah, I, I honestly, I'm going to make this prediction now. I think I think that's going to happen to Terry Rozier this summer. I think somebody's going to want to take a chance on him and end up paying him more money than he's worth and that he's not going to end up being that good. I think he's really thriving under Brad Stevens' old thing right now, and I just don't think that it's going to work out the same way. Yeah, that would be awesome for them if they just uh, traded him for like a first-round pick or something. That'd be great. Yeah, it would. <laughs> more assets for them. Yep, and uh, God knows they need more. So, okay. Uh, then we got that. Okay. Uh, for coach, I actually think this one's kind of interesting. So I, I think this comes down to how much you believe in uh, Mike D'Antoni's uh, play calling ability. We have uh, D'Antoni versus uh, Quinn Snyder. Um, um, uh, Quinn Snyder. <laughs> I love Quinn Snyder. I think he's brilliant. I think he's a top three coach in the NBA. I think if he was coaching more talent, it would be absurd. I think if he was coaching Cleveland, we wouldn't even have any questions about the Eastern Conference. Uh, I, I genuinely mean that too. No, right? I know. Right. <laughs> like, it, I really mean it. If Quinn Snyder's done a brilliant job, like he, he turned a rookie into a sensational offensive performer and has run sets for this rookie that have allowed him to score thirty-eight points in a playoff game. Like, it's just it's absurd what he's done. His defensive schemes are fantastic, and obviously, you know, some of that credit goes to Rudy Gobert for being such a great defensive player. But I mean. He, he, he really does similarly to what Brad Stevens does. And, like, you know, 
you could replace Donovan Mitchell with any other 20-point-per-game scorer and get the same results. So it really shows that he, he's one of those coaches who can kind of work with anything. And um, he, he, he's been doing that, actually. Like, I mean, those these Utah teams have really never been that talented. You've had Hayward and Gobert, but Hayward is a little bit overrated, in my opinion. Yeah, He's getting paid like $170 million, but that guy only averages 20 points and five rebounds. I don't understand why the Celtics think that he's some savior. He's... He's really kind of just a borderline all star. He's he's really like like I'm not I'm not making that up either. Like he, he's like twenty points and five rebounds. It's not a joke. Yeah, they um, need some of that Mormon magic. Well while he's all, he's not even a good defender either. So like there's really Hayward's <laughs> like I, I understand he's a good player, but you know, he's not hundred and seventy million dollars worth of a player. So Quinn Snyder has done a very good job elevating role players. I just think D'Antoni he just He's, he's really just trying the same thing everywhere it goes and seeing who it works with and who it doesn't work with. So, like, you know, Lynn Sanity, and then he tried to get Melo to be Kobe and play the triangle, and then, um, or not the triangle, sorry. He, he tried to go to Melo and have Melo play seven seconds or less, and then he, you know, he, he tried, uh, he, he's, tried, he's just tried so many different things. Like, he's had Steve Nash, and then he's tried. Just uh, he, he did the thing with Raymond Felton for a weird extended amount of time for some reason. All this weird stuff. So D'Antoni kind of just goes wherever. I don't really think that he has anything embedded in his ability to coach. I really feel like it's just a system that he has that he brings and then he preaches it. Um, whereas Quinn Snyder, I think, actually makes game-by-game adjustments. Like, like, well, what can D'Antoni say? Like, It's not like he changes anything from game to game. Like, He doesn't make adjustments. It's just like, we're going to go out and do exactly what we did last game. If it doesn't work, then we're going to lose. Um, so... I just think that D'Antoni probably has some assistance on the bench who are commandeering the defense, and I feel like D'Antoni is just kind of, you know, figuring out different ways and different sets to get different players open threes um, or layups for that matter. So, because um, I mean, if you think I don't, you can think of one because I know well, you don't watch the regular season, but I watched a lot of the regular season. I don't remember an instance where you know Houston was down at the end of a you know regulation game and needed some quick buckets. That weren't threes. <laughs> there were like two buzzer beaters that they had this year, and both of them were just corner threes. So I, I think D'Antoni is a little bit of a one-trick pony, and, uh, and I feel like that's also going to be a downside for when he plays the Warriors because if the Warriors can exploit the fact that he really all he really does is run plays for open threes, and you know, and doesn't really he doesn't really involve screen setting for the th- like he, he he just he's a weird coach. He's he kind of just he, he's really just a system more than he is a coach. I would say. Um, yeah, not, not to say that he hasn't done a good job, but Quinn Snyder has, has done much better, in my opinion. He, he's actually more, he understands actually like what's like what he can change and what's preventable and defenses and offensive sets and passing and literally making Ricky Rubio a viable scorer, which nobody thought was possible. Uh, so I give that to Quinn Snyder. Yeah, and that's absolutely incredible what he's done with Ricky Rubio. It's such a shame that he's not in this series because I think that it would be a way closer series. Yeah, a better series, definitely. Yeah, and like just uh, how the Jazz have been uh, suffering without having the blunder, and like they basically had to transition to ISO ball and a bunch of uh, handoffs whenever they want to make actual passes, which sucks. But I mean, you know, but I, I honestly I think that D'Antoni's uh, biggest strength as a coach is that he'll just do whatever uh, Daryl Morey tells him to, which is a really good thing because there are so many uh, teams where like you have your good GM that won't uh, listen to what the coach says, or you have a really good coach and like the GM has no clue what he's doing. Like that's such an important thing that to have those two on the same page. So I'm yeah, I think that's a really good thing about him. And yeah, I, I think you were mentioning what he does in between games. I I should just notice what's on uh, Ricky Rubio's shirt. He has like a, dic- a dictionary uh, definition of uh, cookie. That's interesting. 
but uh, sorry, that's a tangent. Uh, just the biggest uh, thing for uh, D'Antoni is just take more frees, take more frees, uh, run down the court faster. And it reminds me of uh, watching the 76ers play in the first round, just watching Derek Brown, yeah. uh, not Derek Brown, uh, Brett Brown, like waving his arms, being like, faster, faster, faster. Exactly. It's really just, he's really just about pushing the pace and getting open threes. It's, there's no there's no complexity to Mike Tips No. Okay. So that's uh, clearly an edge to Quinn Snyder then. Okay, so uh, for me, what the Rockets have to do to uh, win this series, they have to uh, avoid going cold from free. And, yeah, we talked about how uh, they're really good at scoring in the paint as well, but as long as Gobert gets his act together and uh, Derek Favors keeps being a defensive presence, it's going to be a lot more difficult for the guards, especially especially to uh, score in the paint, and also even for Clint Capella. So, yeah, try not to go cold from free like they've done. In uh, Game 2, you'll fall in a hole, and it'll be difficult to get out in the second half. So there's that, and what the underdog needs to win. Well, they have to get back and get uh, Ricky Rubio back in like game five or game six if they can even get the series to that. Uh, Ricky Rubio is too important to this team's offense and its ball movement to have him miss the entire series. You're going to lose if that happens. And when he comes back, he has to be, you know, not if not at 100%, he's got to be competent and he's got to be the same uh, creative uh, ball mover that he always is. So that's incredibly important to them. I don't think they can win the series if he never comes back, even if like the Rockets <laughs> just have a terrible series. And then also uh, get great uh, perimeter defense, uh, put pressure on James Harden without fouling him, which is incredibly difficult to do. He'll obviously get us like five fouls per game, but just don't let it go crazy. And also uh, get Gobert to shut down uh, Capella, which yeah, probably isn't going to happen, but at least make it so Capella isn't dominating the paint. And then, you know, get a couple of cold stretches from Harden and Chris Paul. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that for the most part. I think Houston just needs to kind of, they, like, what they need to do to win is just make sure that they don't go cold from three, exactly like you said. I mean, if they're shooting their threes on all cylinders, there's no team in the league that can keep up with them for three-point range. And yes, that includes the Warriors, because the Warriors, despite the fact that they have great shooters, Clay Thompson and Steph Curry are never, they're probably not going to ever combine individually for more than I would say like 13 or 14 threes. Whereas Houston as a team can, like, they, they have absolutely no issue shooting like 60 threes. So, I mean, you know, they, they'll always, like, they'll be making like 19, 20. So, I mean, if, if they just keep wasting their threes and make, make their threes, then they're going to be fine. That's what they need to do. And, uh, you know, Chris Paul and James Harden just can't get testy in tight moments. They just have to make sure that they stay composed and take care of the ball. Yep. Stuff like that. Uh, and then the Jazz, like you said, um, they're actually up pretty big in this game right now, so maybe Houston is close to three. But, um, yeah, Utah really just, I mean, Gobert just kind of needs to clean everything up inside and make sure that Harden doesn't, you know, have field days at the rim and all that stuff. So, um, you know, it's 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 pretty simple actually. I agree with your point about Rubio. Rubio is a very good defender as well. I feel like that's not being talked about as much as it should be. That that takes a lot of the load off Donovan Mitchell. With less than score twenty points per game for all those Jazz fans out there, uh, you know, you guys should be singing more praises to Ricky Rubio. But he, his defense on Harden, you know, we saw how easily it was easy it was for him to get under Russell Westbrook's skin. And um, you know, if he can bother James Harden or Chris Paul in any sense, then that's obviously a bonus. But he was ruled out for 10 days, so I don't know if he's going to make it back for this series at all. And if he doesn't, that'll be a shame. Uh, but yeah, he would need to play at a high level as soon as he got back. I don't think he'd be able to come in and be subpar. The, the Utah really doesn't have any room to make mistakes if they actually want to win this series. Uh, they're currently at 14 before halftime, though, so maybe they can pull out game one. But Houston 
it's crazy how quickly they can come back because of the three point shooting ability. It's like oh yeah, being, they're, they're going to make it, a huge comeback. It's it, it, honestly like it, it's so like for them it's like being down fourteen like like that's the equivalent to them of like being down seven because they did they do everything in three so like they'll be up and like you know they can be up they can go down fifteen and then be up fifteen in a matter of you know. 10 minutes or less even sometimes so um houston is deadly hopefully they can keep it up and get to the conference finals because i'm a huge chris paul fan and i i hate the fact that he's never played in the conference finals yep me as well and yeah like you know that the rockets aren't going to stay cold from free through the entire game and even if they do and like they shoot 19 percent what does they care they'll uh shoot better the next game so, yeah they'll win the next game by like 30 yeah was, so and, yeah. to, and just to our point on uh, Antonio and I actually being a good coach, something we had just talked about in the last podcast about uh, taking your players out uh, when you shouldn't. Uh, D'Antoni took uh, Clint Capella out with like four minutes left in the second quarter because he had free fouls on him, and now all of a sudden uh, Gobert is getting hot in the paint. And I mean, that's don't do that, D'Antoni. That's not very smart. Exactly. I mean, Clint Capella is important, but he's not. I, it, it, like Clint Capella is a player that you really don't even want at the end of a close game to be in the game because of his free throw shooting liability. So um, he's been better this year, I think. Like he, he hasn't been someone that you want shooting shots at the line late in the game. So honestly, if he has four fouls, I don't think it's that much of an issue, especially because he's not active enough to the point. I, I don't even think that he would draw two more fouls unless you know they're forced out of him. So yeah. Um, He's not. He's not a guard or anything. He's not going to be reaching on silly shots, and he's not going to be, you know, going for wild blocks like other players are. So, I don't think. Yeah, he, he should probably be in the game, <laughs> especially. Oh yeah, see, look now, Houston's only down one. They were just down like sixteen. So, but yeah, um, I think that about covers all I have to say about Utah, and Houston. Yep. Okay. So, uh, what? Oh, we didn't do predictions. So, uh, what's your prediction for this series? Uh, I'll take Houston in five. Yeah, and that, that actually is what I've written down as well. Yep, Houston in five. Okay. Yeah, I'm only down nine. Yep, okay. So I guess we'll move on to the Celtic 76ers matchup so we can save the king his rightful place of last. Yes, King James. All right. But uh, the Celtics, yeah, the Celtics are uh, surprising me. They're not really, but I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, they've been uh, proving you right about Brad Stevens, certainly. That is for sure. Okay, so uh, getting straight into matchups, we have a very easy one uh, to start off things. We have uh, point guard Terry Rozier, who you were just saying is overrated by uh, media, the media right now. I'm thinking ooh, he's the second coming of Kyrie Irving or something. And then uh, you have Ben Simmons, who has obviously been uh, pretty much the best uh, per, uh, player at driving in the paint on the, uh, this side of uh, Cleveland. So, yeah. Um, I think Ben Simmons is the best point guard in the Eastern Conference. <laughs> I don't feel bad about saying it either. John Wall is poor decision maker at the end of games. Kyle Lowry is inconsistent. Kyrie Irving is boosted by his system and does not have that many skills aside from his scoring ability. And he has not improved since all the time he's been in the league. Ben Simmons is the most versatile point guard in the Eastern Conference. And even though he has high turnover sometimes, he's well worth it because he's quite unstoppable in the lane. Um, you know, Inside the paint and around the basket, he's a very, very good scorer. And if he wanted to be a 22 points per game scorer, I feel like he could be. He'd have to probably take a little bit of a drop in his assists, but you know, it's not like he's incapable of scoring or anything. Ben Simmons is also seven feet tall, which gives him a clear advantage defensively over most point guards. Uh, Rozier just presented a little bit of a matchup problem for him simply because he's very quick, and you know, it's hard for him to, for Ben Simmons to always keep up. 
Um, I think this is a challenging series for Ben Simmons simply because of the switchability of Boston and the fact that he, you know, he'll go possessions where he'll have to switch on to like Rogier, one Rogier, then Brown, then Tatum, and then you know Baines, who's big, and then Horford, who's very skilled. So I think it'll be a tough series defensively for Ben Simmons, but in terms of a matchup individually with Rogier, it's. I mean, I don't think it's close. I think Ben Simmons, like I just said, is is phenomenal. I think he's a generational talent. And barring any injury, I think he'll, he'll probably end up being one of the best point guards ever. So. Yep, and I mean, it's pretty hard not to be when you're 6'10", but obviously he's incredible for his ability to drive into the lane, and like that's really all his game is, and the fact that he can still do it and it'll work every single game is just a testament to how dominant it is. He doesn't have to shoot an, an, an entire free... It's weird, because to me, it's like, the, the, the difference is like, it's like, you have a player like him, but his ability to do that is never cut off, because he's such a good playmaker that you have to respect the fact that he's either going to score or he's going to give it to somebody else. Whereas like, because people say the same thing about Giannis in terms of like, he, oh, he doesn't need to develop a three point shot, but like, yes, he does because he's not as good of a playmaker. So like, it's like the thing, the thing is if, if you can't shoot, then you have to be able to get the ball to a shooter. So you can still make a three without making the three yourself. And yep. like Giannis doesn't have the capability to do that because even though he's a, you know, like four assists a game is not great. You know, it's good for whatever, but like, He's not, I mean, he's not Ben Simmons. I think Giannis, I think the perception of Giannis onto the Kumbo changes a little bit now that, you know, he was facing an undermanned Celtics team and went to seven games and wasn't able to close it out, even though he had multiple opportunities to do so. And he had, I think, two or three bad games in that series, which, quite frankly, I don't think he should have, so. Yeah, and, uh, and that oh, is unfortunate. So, yeah, Ben Simmons over Rozier. Yeah, and he, def- he definitely benefits from the fact that like there's four better point guards, or maybe five if you want to count James Harden in the West. But yeah, he's definitely the best in the Eastern Conference just for a lack of competition, really. So, okay. Uh, then at shooting guard, we have uh, Jalen Brown versus uh, J.J. Redick. I think we're both going to go with Jalen Brown here just because of our problems with J.J. Redick's arms. I mean, we've seen, we saw in the first round series, it didn't come up as an uh, issue too often, and J.J. Redick still obviously is a great shooter, but Jalen Brown is a better one, and he's really developed and has been a very uh, improved player in his second year in the league, so yeah. Yeah, Jalen Brown is a future all-star for sure. He's very good. He's, I mean, it was weird to me, because looking at him last year, I, like, I, I thought that he would kind of develop in a similar fashion to Kawhi Leonard where he wouldn't really be a, a prevalent offensive player until maybe his, like, you know, fifth, sixth year. But he proved me wrong. He really developed – I mean, he's he's taking seven attempts per game in the playoffs from three-point range, and he's shooting them at a very high clip. I'm not sure if he's at 40 or above 40, but he whatever it is, he's shooting a very high percentage. And, like, seven attempts per game is nothing to scoff at. That's how many attempts Clay Thompson takes per game. So, I mean, Jalen Brown is getting sensational on both ends of the floor, and – uh you know, who knows? Maybe he might end up being a, a player who's similar to Clay Thompson, just with a little bit more refined game inside. So, um, Jalen Brown easily over JJ Redick. JJ Redick's a very one-dimensional player. He's never been a very good defensive player, um, <laughs> limited obviously by his wingspan, as we just mentioned. But uh, JJ Redick is also an inconsistent shooter. Um, I think he gets a lot of praise for being such a good shooter, despite the fact that he's consistently played in a very good systems for him to be a good three-point shooter. For example, he played in Orlando in a system of shooters surrounding a prime Dwight Howard, which was very easy because he didn't get that much offensive attention. Yeah. Then for the Clippers with Chris Paul creating shots for him and the team having to worry about prime Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan dunking all over them. 
So that created a lot of open looks for him. And now he's playing with Joel Embiid, who's a monster inside the paint, and Ben Simmons is going to get him open looks. So um, it's not like J.J. Redick is some sort of fantastic Steph Curry, Clay Thompson type shooter. He's really just – he's closer to Kyle Korver than he is to anybody else. So Yeah, that's actually a pretty good comparison right there, Kyle Korver. But I mean, I would give Korver that. Like, he's three inches taller than Korver is – Corver for some reason, I don't know why, but he's 37 years old. But he, he comes around these hook screens and turns and shoots like he's like 27, which to me is highly impressive. I'm a big Kyle Corver fan. Yeah. Um, seems like a nice guy. So, But yeah, Redick is kind of, he doesn't seem as nice of a guy, so I don't favor him as much. And uh, But even if I liked him, I, I, I couldn't say that he's better than Jalen Brown. I don't have any of the imagination. Yeah. Okay. So that's a shooting guard matchup. Then at a small forward, we have uh, two players that are remarkably similar. We have... Uh, Jason Tatum versus uh, Dario Saric. So they're about to... Uh, I, I haven't looked at the actual percentages, but I think they're very close in terms of their free point percentage. They're both obviously uh, plus defenders. Uh, on offense, they're both uh, pretty good at uh, passing out of uh, bad positions, and they're both pretty good at iso ball. So honestly, I'm not sure who you take in this one. Well, simply because I feel like Jason Tatum is going to be a more featured factor on his team, I would have to say Jason Tatum. I feel like Dario Saric is going to get lost in the fact that the team is always going to be want to going. They're always going to want to go through either shooting from Covington or Redick, or you know, two man game between Embiid and Simmons. I feel like Saric is kind of going to be the lost man in their offense. Not to say that he's not amazing and can pull them out sometimes, but Jason Tatum is going to be featured as a primary scorer along with Rozier and Brown. Where you know, and then you got Horford kind of taping everything up and making sure that everything's running smoothly and being their on-court coach while also contributing himself. Um, simply because Tatum's role, I mean, I think he's seen kind of more as the future cornerstone of this franchise, even ahead of, you know, Brown and Irving and Hayward. Um, I feel like more people point to him as, like the Celtics are, I think, most excited about him and his development. I feel like if it came down to getting a trade for Kawhi, you definitely trade Brown over Tatum. So yeah. um, Tatum is kind of their, their prize gem, so... I think they're going to be looking to feature him more in the offense, and I feel like the increased opportunities are going to make him the better player in this series. So for those reasons, I'll take Tatum. Yeah, I'm just going to call it a tie, honestly. I don't know who to take there. Okay, so uh, at the next uh, position, we have uh, Power Forward. We have uh, Marcus Morris versus uh, Robert Covington. So we've obviously uh, both been uh, super high on Marcus Morris and how uh, big of an impact he makes for the uh, Celtics, whether he's coming off the bench or whether he's lending a couple free point shots or some excellent defense. But as we've said in the first round series, uh, Robert Covington, he was the best defensive player in that uh, uh, Sixers uh, Heat series. So he's obviously uh, very good on that end. And also you can count on him for some free point shots occasionally. And he's not too bad at passing out of the post. So, like, I mean, it's kind of close, but I think we both uh, lean Marcus Morris here. Yeah, I do as well. Yeah, Marcus, I mean, it's not even necessarily from the standpoint of I think Marcus Morris is the better player. It's simply because like Marcus Morris has just stepped up in such a way for the Celtics team that it seems like he's he's playing at a at a level that that is higher than the player that he is, and I think that's impressive because he, like he, it's really like a next man up mentality that he's adopted very well. Um, and I just think that you know Marcus's Marcus Morris's ability to do things off the dribble, despite his size, kind of makes him more of a threat offensively while not giving up much defensively. Um, and, you know, Coving Covington is the better defender, but I don't. I think the drop-off in, you know, Marcus Morris's offensive presence is, is much more outweighed by, you know, it, it outweighs Covington's by a lot. And 
like I said, prevalence in this series, the Celtics are going to be relying on, you know, everybody to do a good job. And so I feel like their players collected, like individually, they'll each play better than I think the than the Sixers players will. It's, it's weird because like the Sixers are kind of like, they're in this thing where they have the two best players in the series, you know, Embiid and Simmons. Yeah. They're playing through them, but the Celtics have a better team. So it, it's really coming down to the fact of like, you know, the Celtics don't have the talent to match up with them, but they have the team mentality and the team spirit and the team like fundamentals and just the coaching aspect all, of all of it. Like, like if they had Kyrie Irving in the series, I don't think we'd be having this conversation like in terms of, oh, is this even going to be a close series? Because if Kyrie was there, then you'd have everything that the Celtics need. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think if they had Kyrie Irving or Hayward for that matter, if they had either of the two, they'd probably be the lock to make the finals out of the Eastern Conference, given how poorly Cleveland has been playing. So, um, yeah, I, I'm going to go with Marcus Morris just because I think the Celtics collectively, like, it, it's it's weird what I'm trying to say. Like, collectively, they individually each play amazingly because of, like, the burden that they each have to carry. Um, so, yeah, for that reason, I think Marcus Morris is going to be the more important and as a result of being more important player, he's going to be the better player in the series. Yeah, I can agree with that as well. Okay, so then we have uh, the center position, and unfortunately for Al Horford, there's no contest. Joel Embiid is one of the best centers in the league. He's certainly one of the best defenders. He's one of the best three-pointing shooting uh, centers. He's one of the best passing centers. He's one of the best at uh, taking the ball up the court and dribbling it around. He's better at dribbling and dribbling behind the back. You can even say that he's uh, better in the pick-and-roll game and possibly even uh, a better uh, screener, even, which is incredible because... Uh, Obviously, Al Horford is one of the best screeners in the league, but Joel Embiid can really do anything, and if he stays healthy, he can uh, go down as like a generational center. Yeah, I mean, Horford, really, the only advantage that Horford has is the fact that he's like he's just more experienced. Um, I don't think the veteran savvy, though, is going to be enough to make up for Al Horford's lack of, you know, everything. <laughs> Like I love Horford. He, he's he's a really good, he's a good player, but he's not a superstar player. And just, I mean, the fact is, like he's he's really a glorified role player at this point. Um, he, he well, he stepped up in the playoffs. Don't get me wrong, but just in terms of who he is as a player now, is he's just not even close to the same standard as Joel Embiid is. Um, and you know that's the case for it being any point in Al Horford's career. He's never the player that he's been his whole career is not comparable to the player that Joel Embiid is now. And you know, much less the player than Joel Embiid can turn out to be. So uh, it's going to be Embiid pretty close, uh, uh, you know, with a pretty wide margin for me. Like defensively, Al Horford is is a great positional defender. He's in the right spots and he makes the right plays. But just his ability to actually change, like you know, shots and actively involve himself in switching and all that kind of stuff, it, it's it's not going to be like Joel Embiid is going to take that by far. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I think Joel Embiid is the second best defensive center in the league behind Rudy Gobert. Um, and you know, obviously, I, I think Joel Embiid is the best center in the league because he's not—he's uh, not limited by any sort of like, like, like Carl Anthony Towns still has a lot of strides to make defensively, and he choked in the playoffs. And then you have Boogie, who's never played in a playoff game, and you know, people argue that he doesn't play winning basketball. And then you have Rudy Gobert, who's not the same player offensively, and then. Um, Depending on if you consider Anthony Davis a center, then yes, Anthony Davis is better. But I mean, if it's about, even behind Anthony Davis, I think Embiid is number two. And then if you consider Anthony Davis a power forward, like many people still do, um, then yeah, I say Embiid is the best center in the league. So similarly to how we said the whole Harden thing is going to be better than any center, I think Embiid is going to be matched. He's going to be matched 
and no matter who's he, who he's matched up against at center, it's going to be Embiid. Yep. Okay. So now we can move on to the bench uh, matchup. Uh, this one uh, really defined by uh, Greg Monroe, Marcus Smart, if he uh, remains healthy, and uh, Aaron Baines versus... Not Aaron Baines, dang it, I forgot to get rid of that. And he, yep, he's still out for the season. Uh, versus uh, T.G. McConnell, uh, Marco... Oh, no, no, Aaron Baines is playing. I think you're thinking of Daniel Tice. Oh, yeah, I am thinking of Daniel Tice. Whoops. Yeah, Aaron Baines is there. He's, he's on their bench. He, I mean, he's... He's not that great or anything, but he's there. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, Aaron Maines is there, as you said. So, I don't know, he can give you one or two screens, maybe screen the coach if he has to. <laughs> then you got uh, Marco Bellinelli, uh, T.J. McConnell, and then our favorite, Ursan Ilyasova, coming off the 76ers bench. Wow. Um, it's close because you have shooting versus composure, in my opinion. Um, but I'm going to side with composure because I don't think Margot Bellinelli and Ursan Eliasova have had lights out phenomenal games for Philly. Like they've had like 24 points, but like come like each of them have had 24 um, in games before. I think there was one game where Marco Bellinelli had 28 and Ursan Eliasova had 24, and that was just absurd. Like it was, and then like on top of all that, Embiid had his numbers, and so did Simmons, and so did Covington. Um, I just don't think that it's sustainable, whereas the Celtics play offensively and defensively has been sustainable from their bench all season long. Um, it's just they're much more consistent, I feel like, and you always get more consistency when your style is more defensive and uh, you know gritty and determined rather than let's go out there and shoot a bunch of threes because if your shot abandons you, then so does the whole game. And the Sixers really are a live-by-the-three, die-by-the-three team. I mean, we saw that in game one, like they lost by 16 points because they only made five three pointers. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I'm going to go with the Sixers, uh, the Celtics bench, because I feel like your bench is, is a kind of a extension of your coaching. And I don't know, uh, we're going to have the coaching discussion in a second, I, I think, but I mean, Brad Stevens far and away the better coach. So yes, that... as a result, I think, uh, the Celtics bench has a clear advantage just because of, you know, they have much less of an opportunity to be inconsistent, whereas the Sixers bench is going to vary game by game. Yeah, and uh, really we're going to have the coaching non-discussion uh, here. Yeah, there's really nothing to say. Uh, we've talked about uh, Brad Stevens' uh, incredible play calling, incredible ability to uh, manage the clock, call timeouts whenever a team is going on the run, his ability to put in players when he needs to, take them out when they're uh, going cold, and just managing the egos as well, and uh, getting everyone to buy into the system and having a really good uh, next man up philosophy where your point guard can go down, your uh, starting uh, small forward can go down five minutes into the season. Nobody's going to care. They're going to get more playing time. They should be happy about it. And everyone's going to just slide into the new role and everyone's going to do just fine. So, yeah, that's the coaching matchup. Uh, just in terms of uh, what the favorite needs to do the win, for uh, me, uh, they have to uh, keep getting awesome production out of uh, Terry Rozier, uh, Jalen Brown, and uh, Jason Tatum. If they start to uh, go cold, the Celtics are going to run into uh, quite a bit of trouble. They also have to get Horford to continue his awesome uh, ball movement, because that was really helpful in the first round. And then uh, don't let the defense just fall apart, because if the defense goes down, then the, the 76ers are just going to run for you, and you're going to lose by like 150 points or something. Uh, then what the underdog needs to win, uh, don't let uh, any of the players run for you and get production, uh, mainly out of the forward positions. And then uh, make sure you keep getting production out of uh, Ben Simmons, and... Uh, 
keep the uh, Ben Simmons to Joel Embiid uh, connection ro rolling fine. And, yeah, just don't slow down your offense. Yeah, I mean, Brad Stevens is just Brad Stevens. I mean, <laughs> he just needs to do what he needs to do for them to win, and he just needs to make sure that everybody stays composed and doesn't feel the moment is too big, which they don't. And, uh, you know, they just have to literally just stick by what they've been doing all season, which is just have a mentality that they're not at a disadvantage. They've been doing an excellent job with that. If they keep that up, then it's going to be great for them. And then if the Celtics, uh, if the Sixers want to win, then Simmons and Embiid just be the best players in the series, step up and take it and make the teammates around you better and just, and just do it because you're facing an inferior talent and, uh, you know, you don't have an excuse. So, um, you know, another thing about the Celtics in general is like they have no pressure to win. Like they, they're literally playing a bunch of young kids. Like like they have just this this weird assortment of players who've been in the league for a few years, old players, and then young players. And then this, you know, then the Sixers are a similar thing, but they're relying more on their young talent, and their young talent has more pressure to win because now there are people who are saying, "Oh, they're going to win the Eastern Conference. Oh, they're going to they're going to beat LeBron. They're going to do this. They're going to do that." And the Celtics just like. I mean, the Celtics have been written off essentially since Gordon Hayward got injured. I, I don't think people saw them as a legitimate contender ever since that five minutes into the season. They, they stopped seeing them as a legitimate contender because they didn't think Kyrie Irving and a bunch of kids was going to be able to you know, lead you to a conference championship. But uh, the Celtics, they, they have no pressure. Like They can just go out there and play their game and do their best, and you know they might end up winning. So uh, I think that's what they should do. I don't think they should take it too hard. I don't think they should be hard on themselves if things don't work out because – uh, I think it's clear that we have a pretty uh, excellent matchup in the future between the, uh, you know, the new Boston Celtics when they're fully healthy and the 76ers. And it's interesting to me how everyone is so quick to say, you know, the 76ers are going to dominate the Eastern Conference for the next 10 years. But I mean, Boston is no joke. You have all these young players and all this young talent. And I think Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum have developed a, such a good chemistry that they're going to want to play together and stay together. So you have essentially a big four for a good time. You've got Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. It's a little bit of a small lineup, but you can figure it out, um, you know, depending on the center that you get. And, you know, uh, it's going to be a great matchup for the future, and hopefully it's a great matchup for the rest of the series. Yeah, so uh, for me, uh, my prediction is, and, and this is entirely just because I can't imagine the Celtics winning this again, even though they just did it against the Bucks, and even though they just did it in Game 1, I can't picture them winning this series I, I you know, like everything is saying right now that the Celtics are going to win the series but I can't tell you how like I, I can't tell you that the 76ers are going to get shut down on offense for uh, four games I don't think that's going to happen so I'm picking the 76ers in seven games and that's tough for me because that means that the 76ers have to win in Boston and really I can't give you a good reason why the 76ers are going to win but I just can't see how the Celtics win it. Um, you know, I think I'll, I'll I'll do this. I think I'll say. I think I don't think the Celtics. I don't think the Sixers are capable of winning a Game Seven in Boston. So I'll say that the Sixers will take the game. Will take the series in six. I feel like they can get Game Two on the road because you know it's just a bounce back game because that usually happens with teams that are pretty close. Um, you know, you get the home home split, and then I think Philly will probably be able to. Um, win both of their home games, so then it'll be 3-1, and then Boston will win their game five at home, and then Philly can close it out in six games um, on their home court in uh, game six. Um, I just don't think that, even though, like I said, I've been praising Boston and everything, but I just don't think that at the end of the day they have enough, um, they, they really just don't have enough talent. Like, yeah. 
Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are still just very raw players, even though they're very good. They, they're not really refined in anything, whereas Ben Simmons is already a generational passer and Embiid is already a generational post player and defender. Um, Simmons and Brown are just raw scorers at this point with good defensive potential who are doing a good job of showcasing it. But, you know, uh, I just don't think that they have enough to pull that out for the whole series. Um, but, it, I mean, if they do, that, that's... I'm giving all the credit to Brad Stevens. <laughs> yep. Okay. Uh, and it's gonna, honestly going to be a very uh, similar uh, pick for me in the uh, uh, Cavs-Raptors uh, series just because I think it's a similar issue. But overall, I think we can probably agree on the winner of uh, this uh, Celtics 76ers series is probably going to go to the NBA Finals. I don't think the Cavs are uh, good enough right now to beat either of them, and the only reason that they even have a chance against the Raptors here is because the Raptors have a history of uh, underperformance. That is true. And of course, they have the best player of all time on their team, but you know. Yep, that is true. All right. So I guess we can get into that uh, last series of the uh, second round then. So we have the Raptors versus the Cavaliers. At uh, point guard, we have uh, Kyle Lowry versus uh, George Hill. And it, this one is only a competition because uh, Kyle Lowry is infamous for his uh, playoff underperformance. But luckily for him, George Hill hasn't been particularly good either. That's true. I mean, I got Kyle Lowry just because I feel like he offers more in it. Like, George Hill has just kind of been a disappointment for me since he's shown up in Cleveland. He hasn't been the same defensively. He hasn't been playmaking. He hasn't been shooting the ball as well. Um, Kyle Lowry, he, he, you know, he's, he's Kyle Lowry. He's, he's what we expect. He's he's essentially Raymond Felton, except the fact that he knows Drake's phone number. So, um, you know, Kyle Lowry's good. I like Kyle Lowry. He plays with good intensity. And I think he's declined a little bit defensively as he's gotten older. But, he, you know, he's, he still tries. He's, he still does his best, so. Um, he's, he's still an all-star, so, you know, Kyle Lowry uh, over George Hill. But if George Hill had been playing well since he got in Cleveland, this would be a different discussion. Yes. Okay. And, and don't look now, the Rockets just tied up the game. Just so, just, yeah. like, just like we called it, they were going to go on a run. Yeah. All right. So uh, back to the matchups. We have uh, at shooting guard, uh, DeMar DeRozan versus Cal Corver. And luckily, we don't have to worry about that much player uh, playoff underperformance for uh, DeMar DeRozan. Obviously, he can get a little usage heavy. He can get a little ISO heavy. But luckily for him, Kyle Korver can get a little uh, no defense heavy. Yeah, I mean, I got DeMar DeRozan. He's a star player. Uh, I mean, DeMar DeRozan has his issues as a player. But, like, I mean, uh, <laughs> Kyle Korver is not even, like, he, he's just, he's really just, like, he just turns corners and shoots threes. He, he's not a, he's not really a. Like a, he's not an integral piece of a basketball team at this point in his career. Like he's literally just out there so he can, you know, flick his wrist a couple times from the corners. So um, yeah, DeRozan pretty easily at this point. You know, he's better defensively, better scorer. He's literally everything better except just not a better shooter. So yeah, okay. So that's a shooting guard, small forward. You don't even have to discuss. I mean, there, uh, LeBron James would beat anyone already, but he's definitely beating CJ Miles. So yeah. Yeah, CJ Miles deemed to be one of the LeBron stoppers. Not a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe, maybe if they trade for Lance Stevenson, even though that's completely illegal by the NBA rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. CJ Miles, Lance Stevenson, PJ Tucker are apparently the LeBron stoppers, along with uh, I don't even remember. There was one more player who was never actually that good. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe if the public is believed Kawhi Leonard. Oh yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 
he look, he's quote unquote a LeBron stopper, but LeBron still averaged twenty eight seven yeah, seven. Exactly. What did that need to hear over there? Yeah. Okay. So now we have a power forward, which is going to be uh, Serge Ibaka versus uh, Jeff Green, and this one is made easy only by how horrible Jeff Green was in the first round. He's probably not even going to be starting, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Jeff, I mean, Serge Ibaka is. I mean, even though he lied about his age, definitely he's <laughs> still good. He can shoot the three and still play defense at a high level. But I, the only reason to anyone listening wondering why I make that joke about Serge Ibaka's age is because he played at such a amazing level defensively a few years ago, but all of a sudden it looks like he's declined, like he's aged 10 years, even though he's quote-unquote 27. Um, to yep. me, that's not the truth. I feel like he was probably 27 then, and now he's kind of in his early 30s, and that's why he's not the player that he used to be. But regardless, he's a better three-point shooter than Jeff Green, and that matters. And Jeff Green is very strange as a player. He's He can be very impactful and very useless, so... Yeah, uh, Serge Ibaka, just because I think the consistency is better. Yeah, and I had a lot higher expectations for Jeff Green coming off the Grizzlies, but he he just hasn't been the same player since. And obviously, he's past his prime, but you got to get more production out of him. Like right now, the Cavs can't trust him for any offense. He had a very good game one, though. No, he did, but I mean, that's it. Yeah, so far that is better. And then center the matchup that I'm dreading talking about. <laughs> Yeah, so we have uh, Jonas Valanciunas versus uh, Kevin Love because I think that uh, Tristan Thompson is still relegated to the bench here. Yeah, I mean, this is going to—it literally hurts me to say this, but I have to go with Jonas Valanciunas, literally just because Kevin Love is horrible. He's had the worst playoff series of his entire career. He averaged 11 points on 33% shooting from the field, and then he played worse in Game 1 against Toronto. Like, he— I don't know what it is about him. Like, there's just something wrong with him. The moment is too big for him. His hand is broken or something. I don't know why. He's, he's not playing with any confidence. He's missing baby hooks, like, literally right at the rim. I don't know what his issue is. And Jonas Valanciunas is... There's no reason for me to be picking him because he's missed three straight bunnies at the rim yeah. that would have been that game. But, like, I just have to because Kevin Love is playing so poorly. Like, it's just not even comparable how bad he's been. Um, nobody in this, nobody in the Cavs is still has yet to score twenty points in a series in the in a game in any of them. And I think Kevin Love's high this playoffs has been fourteen, which is just atrocious. So I'm gonna have to go with the owners balance units for the time being. Hopefully that changes. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go with him as well. Kevin Love's three point shooting has been basically non existent in the playoffs. His defense hasn't been particularly good either. And like the fact that uh, Tristan Thompson was playing as much as he was in Game Seven is pretty telling. It was just Tyron lose uh, how how much he was getting fed up with it, and yeah, like there's not much going on for uh, Kevin Love right now. Jonas Valanciunas, obviously, he's always super enigmatic. I always think that he's going to be better than he is every season, and then he's just you know meh, and that kind of sucks. But I guess he finally gets his uh, chance in the limelight, and like that'll matter because the Raptors aren't exactly a team that passes into the post. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just he's just another anomaly. It's like why hasn't he been better? I honestly, I don't know. I, mean, I feel like he should just take some time in the off season and been you know done something about uh done something about his three point shot because if he developed one of those, <laughs> he might actually be able to be pretty relevant. But that's probably not gonna happen. Yeah, I mean, that could be said for uh, pretty much any center, but yeah, that, that, that'd be cool if you just start shooting some freeze. Yeah, yeah. oh, one second, Ryan, I'm getting, getting cold. Yeah, just mute your mic. Okay, so uh, we've, you know, we're have we pretty much uh, done discussing those uh, 
series right there, I guess I'll uh, tell you some of the stuff I feel. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so uh, we, uh, Rod and I have been watching the uh, Rockets versus uh, Jazz uh, game two because, you know, we're doing these playoff uh, previews late. And uh, just uh, stuff we've been seeing out of the game. Uh, obviously, the... oh, okay, well, you forgot it. Uh, we'll talk about that in that game later. So, yeah. And uh, as you saw that little, uh, I don't even know what you'd call it, uh, tug of war over a ball between uh, P.J. Tucker and, uh, who is that, uh, Donovan Mitchell. Yeah, it seems like this game is starting to get a little feisty, especially after uh, Gobert just kind of smacked uh, yeah, Harden in the chest for no reason. I'm surprised uh, they didn't call a foul. Yeah, uh, that was weird. Yeah. Okay. Um, Anyways, where were we? I think we were talking about Jonas Valanciunas. And yeah, I think we were uh, just saying that Jonas Valanciunas, if he developed a three-point shot just completely randomly, that would be, make him an interesting player for once. That is true. Okay, so after that we can get into the coaching, and I think we both have to go with Dwayne Casey, even though I'm not particularly high on him. Yeah, I mean, he, he's he's done an okay job this year. They're a top-five offense and defense, but I feel like it's system change, and he probably got some new assistants and got a ramped-up bench. Um but, I mean, th- this really just comes down to Toronto being bad than it does Dwayne Casey being good. Toronto's a horrible coach. He doesn't, he, he has yet to, he, he, <laughs> they don't have, they don't have a starting lineup. They, they don't. They don't have a starting lineup for the, for the 27 to 2018 NBA playoffs. They don't have one. They've, they've changed the starting lineup. Like, so I think they've had, I'm not sure what the count is, but they've had, like, I think nearly 40 starting lineups this season. Um, and obviously some of that is due to injury, but Toronto really just has no idea who to play. I mean, there was a, there was a stretch of the game where he had LeBron. It was a critical moment of the game where you you know you need some shot making and like the lineup on the floor was Tristan Thompson, Jeff Green, LeBron, Jordan Clarkson, and Rodney Hood, which is probably the worst lineup that the Cavs could possibly play simply because Jordan Clarkson's favorite possession in the league is dribble seven times and take a pull up contested jump shot, and Rodney Hood's is miss an open three, <laughs> and Jeff Green's is try and do something and not do it well, and then Tristan Thompson is just rolled to the rim, and then you have to have poor LeBron out there trying to figure out what to do and how to completely freeze three players out of the offense so he can just play two men with Tristan because that's the only thing that will work. Yep. And uh, also, I, I was noticing, it, it seems like Tyrone Lue has the president syndrome where after a couple of years in uh, of being a president, they always get uh, super gray hair. I was just seeing him in like an interview, like two or three oh, days. Oh, yeah, he's aged so much for some. I feel like he has some stress issues or something with the team. He he has aged like ten years in two years. Oh yeah, it's disturbing. Sim- similar to like how Obama did. Yeah, yeah, that was exactly what I had in mind. Okay, so uh, what the favorite needs to do to win this series? Uh, Lowry has to uh, play to his uh, regular season form, which I'm just gonna say right now isn't gonna happen. He's gonna play like his usual uh, playoff underperformance. So really, what has to happen is DeRozan has to uh, play the game like uh, Dwayne Casey has been wanting to him to all season, be a good ball distributor, take more frees, not play iso ball the entire game, and keep his usage percentage down. And the bench mob has to get back to its uh, mob-tastic ways. And for the Cavs, really what they have to have happen, uh, Lowry has to uh, obviously underperform, DeRozan has, and DeRozan has to just revert back to his uh, playoff form from the past couple of years against the Cavs. And the bench mob has to just not give you anything. That's you know, really important. And even then, I don't think it's enough because like I, it, there's just too many good players on the Raptors, and there's just way too many bad players on the Cavs right now. Well, here's what I will say. I, um, 
what the Raptors need to do this, to win this series is literally just go out there and win it. Yeah. Um, they, they, there's literally no, they have no reason not to win this series. I don't know what it is, but for some reason they just, they, they just don't like they, they can, and they should, but they, they just, I don't know why, but they're like, they just don't <laughs> like, I don't know what it is about DeMar DeRozan, but he's such a good player. And then like, he, he comes to the playoffs and he's just not that player. Like, I did like a whole. I was. I was actually. Let me, let me find it actually because this is something pretty interesting that I was. Uh, I was coming. I was calculating some stats on Demar Derozan yesterday. So Demar Derozan in the regular season in two thousand. Uh, so Demar Derozan's regular season stats and shooting splits versus his playoff stats and shooting splits. Okay. So in two thousand sixteen in the regular season he twenty four points five rebounds four assists on forty five percent shooting from the field thirty four percent shooting from three. But then in the 2016 playoffs, he was 20 points per game, four rebounds, two assists on 39% shooting from the field and 15% shooting from three. And he only averaged 17 points per game in this series against Cleveland. Wow. In the 2017 regular season, he averaged 27 points per game, five rebounds, four assists on 47% shooting from the field, 27% shooting from three. But then in the 2017 playoffs, he averaged 22 points per game, five rebounds, three assists on 43% shooting from the field, 6% shooting from three. Oh, my God. Six, like flat six. Like I was looking at the numbers, and I thought it was a typo. It was .067, so 6% from three, and um, only 20 points per game in the series against Cleveland. And then his regular season averages since you know Toronto started making the playoffs in 2015 or 14, his regular season averages have been 23, 4, 5 on 44% shooting and 31% shooting from three. And then his playoff averages have been 21, 4, 3. And then his shooting from the field has been 40. And then his shooting from three has been 20. And his 40% from the field is not like a high 40. That's almost 41. It's like 40.3. So a couple of missed shots would have him below 40 um, for the for his playoff career. And I don't know what it is about him that just makes him not the same player in the playoffs. Um, but whatever it is has to stop for the Raptors to be successful, especially against Cleveland. Um he just seems really tentative to take the ball into his hands in the last couple of possessions against Cleveland. And it was a shame to see that yesterday because he was playing very well and he was doing, he was making really good defensive plays and he had some really key blocks that, you know, help them, uh, help them, um, you know, help them uh, stay in the game and not lose control of the game. And it just gave the whole crowd energy and everything. But then it came down to the final moments and Fred Van Vliet was shooting their two most critical shots in the game rather than their two stars. So, it's just a weird thing what happens to you know Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan in the playoffs. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it just seems like the moment is, is an interesting time for DeMar DeRozan at the end of games. But whatever it is that they need to overcome it, and then for the Cavs to win, and that's literally all I think Toronto needs to do to win the series. I really just think that either one of Kyle Lowry or DeMar DeRozan just needs to get over whatever it is that's holding them back. Like Because if you just get good, consistent play from one of them, then Cleveland just doesn't have enough talent to, you know, in my opinion, overcome that. Yeah. Um, unless, of course, they uh, for some reason start playing like a really good offensive team again, which I don't think they will do. But yeah, how how crazy defense. would that be if like they just all of a sudden started playing amazing defense and amazing offense and they, like it's yeah, just like oh, they got over. has been okay thus far, I think, in the in the playoffs because they did a good job against Indiana, but Indiana's not a high scoring team anyway. And they held Toronto to one thirteen, even though they were top five offense in the regular season, so that wasn't horrible. Uh, or they held Toronto to one twelve, excuse me, but. Um, yeah, you know, if Cleveland just gets it together offensively, then, you know, they can have... Because this is their highest-scoring game of the playoffs thus far. I don't, they think they only scored... The highest they scored prior to this 113 yesterday was 105 in Game 7 against uh, Indiana. So slowly but surely, they're, they're finally starting to score a little bit more. But um, 
All what Cleveland needs to do to win is they have two options. Uh, LeBron James can go supernova and <laughs> have like forty in every game, and just have you know like forty, fifteen, and something around like six, seven assists every single game, and then you can just get like your consistent you know okay or your consistent ten, close to ten from everybody else, or LeBron can average like thirty, um, you know, thirty. I would like thirty-eight and eight. And then you just get, you know, maybe 15 consistently from Love and then Tristan Thompson just continue to play with energy and then just something from one other player. And it doesn't really matter who it is. It can be Hood or Corver or Smith or Clarkson or Nance or Jeff Green or whatever. Um, you know, you just kind of need some some consistent options behind LeBron. And I think Kevin Love has to be number two. Thompson has to be number three. And then you can figure out who else is going gonna, is gonna to be close to Thompson. So... Um, that's what the Cavs need. You know, those are their options to win the series. Uh, but for the Raptors, it's really, in my opinion, it's just a psychological thing at this point. I don't know what it is, but they just don't seem to like be able to close it out. Um, and just a little tangent here, or it's not really a tangent; it's about the same thing. But this, this to me is absurd because, like, Toronto. So, like, it just, just bear with me for a second. Toronto. Yeah. This is their best team in franchise history. They have 59 wins. This is their first time clinching the conference. They have the second best record in the NBA. They would have home court advantage if they played the Warriors in the NBA Finals. They have a top five offense in the league, a top five defense in the league. The Cavs, however, still beat them, even though LeBron James shot 40% from the field, which he never does. He shot 12 of 30, which is very rare for him. He shot one of eight from the three-point line and one of six from the free-throw line, and no player other than LeBron scored. Well, J.R. Smith scored 20, but other than that, you know, every, like, this was the first game in the playoffs that someone other than LeBron on the Cavs has scored 20 and J.R. Smith scored exactly 20. Um, and for those reasons, I just think that it's safe. Like, I, I feel like there's just something about them and LeBron because, like, that's probably going to be the worst night that, sh- uh, you know, the worst shooting night that LeBron is going to have all series. He also played 47 minutes after being admittedly burnt out. He said that he was burnt out after the series against Indiana and that he was tired. But he played 47 more minutes and they still won. And just Toronto last night, had more rebounds, more assists, less personal fouls. They shot 10% better from the free throw line, and they shot more efficiently from the field. They still lost by one. So I, it's just so weird what's what's happening to Toronto. Like It's like they literally beat Cleveland in every single category last night, but they lost by one, which yeah. is just crazy. And like it's just you just look at the moment for them, and like they have so many opportunities to just win the game by making like if Valanciunas makes one of those bunnies, we're having a different conversation right now. And ultimately, this for Toronto is kind of why I don't think that they can beat Cleveland. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take I know it's I know we're not at predictions yet, but you know I'll just say I mean, yeah, I've, I've got the Cavaliers in six games because okay. I just don't think that the Raptors, for whatever reason, have it together against them. I just feel like they feel psychologically owned by LeBron. He's beaten them nine of the last 11 times and two and one against them in the regular season, even though they're a much better team. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, LeBron just seems to have their number. Yeah, so, I mean, we're going to get to predictions next anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, I was just going to say that, obviously, we're both uh, super excited to see LeBron, so that's what we're looking forward to most in this series. And for me, the only way that the Raptors win the series is if they sweep uh, the Cavs and LeBron in the next four games. If this series goes six games, the Cavs are winning. If this series goes seven games, the Cavs are winning. LeBron's not lo- not going to get eliminated on his home court, and he's also not going to lose a game seven at this point because, as the stats have shown lately, he's the best in game sevens in NBA history. 
Like, five in his last five, five and two overall, 35 points per game. Yeah. Amazing. Greatest. So that's the only way that the Raptors can win the series. They win the next four games, and I don't think that's going to happen. I think at the very least the Cavs will get one of those games. So I can't... Uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it looks like the Cavs are going to go to the Eastern Conference Finals after all. Yeah, I think they will. Um, but honestly, here, like this is maybe maybe this is a hot take, but I think if I mean if the Cavs get it together in terms of like if no, they if they just, can, if if they get it together, like I think they can make the finals because like no, I agree. Because if if the Sixers have a tough time, you know, closing out Boston, which I feel like they might, and just. Like you know, there's just a lot for them to have to manage. Like, who's gonna? Nobody on the team is still is gonna be still capable of guarding LeBron. And like, if you th- if you look at it from like from the perspective of their supporting cast, it's really the, like, I mean, their supporting cast really in terms of the talent of their supporting cast are, are relatively similar. Like, it's like it's not like you know Philadelphia has some stacked bench or just like they, they both teams just have subpar shooters. Like, it's it's you know or subpar players who are good shooters. Like you know Rodney Hood and whatever, all this other stuff. So um, Rodney Hood and Kevin Love at this point and uh, Kyle Korver, like the, 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 to me, that's kind of the same thing as having like Ursan Ilyasova, Marco Bellinelli, uh, JJ Redick. Like, so, I mean, if the Cavs get it together offensively and they can just start making their three-point shots for whatever reason they can, it's weird because they're missing open shots. They were the fourth best team in the league on converting wide open shots in the regular season. And, the NBA deems wide open shots as being any shot where there's no defender within four or five feet of you, four to five feet of you. And then, um, but yeah, they were fourth in the regular season at wide open shots, but in the playoffs, they've been, I think, second to last or maybe even last. So, you know, as soon as they start making their wide open shots, I feel like Cleveland will be fine for that reason. And a, a bunch and bunch and bunch of blind faith in LeBron. I still think the Cavs will win the Eastern Conference. Um, I just feel like it'll be a great feat for LeBron as well. And I feel like we'll be motivated to do it as he realizes what it is because to this point in NBA history, only four teams have made the NBA finals four straight years. Um, and LeBron would be the first player to do that twice. Yeah. Um, and he would have done it with two different teams, which has never been done before because the current four teams are his Miami Heat, Larry Bird, Celtics, the Showtime Lakers, and then Bill Russell Celtics. Yep. So. Oh, and no, 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 no. It's not, it's not magic Celtics. It's not magic Lakers. Actually. It's a, uh, the Kobe Shaq Lakers, because they won in 01, 02, 03, uh, they won in 2000, 2001, 2002, they won all three, and then they lost. Oh, no, no, they didn't. They didn't. They, they didn't make it in 03. No, I'm right. It's Magic Celtics. Well, Magic, no, no, they did. It, it, they won the free, and the Lakers won the free championships, and then they made the finals against the Nets that year. No, that was the Spurs, because the Spurs won in 2003. Oh. There was a break, because there was, oh, the like 2000, 2001, 2002 was the Lakers three-peat. Then it was Tim Duncan's a second championship in 2003. And then 2004, they lost to the Pistons, the Lakers. There was a one-year. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's Magic's, Magic's Lakers, Larry's Celtics, Russell Celtics, and LeBron's Heat. And LeBron can make that uh, LeBron's Cavs, and he will have done it twice. And that's just another argument to show why he's one of the greatest players, if not the greatest player of all time. So, um, yeah, that's what I think it's, you know. I, I want the Cavs to make it because I love LeBron James, but I, I won't be opposed to it if he doesn't make it because you know it, it'll be cool to either see the Sixers or Celtics or you know the Raptors, even though I don't think that's plausible uh, breakthrough. I mean, if the Raptors broke through, honestly, that'd be great for them. I'd be really happy for them. Yeah. Like I feel like by this point, 
Like they, I feel like psychologically they just deserve it to get this monkey off their back finally. But um, you know that that probably might not happen. There, there are already people out there like Skip Bayless, not even a LeBron fan, predicted that they'll sweep the Raptors simply because he doesn't have any faith in Toronto. And then you know you have a uh, Chris Broussard, another good NBA analyst, who thinks that it's possible that they'll sweep them, but he also has Cavaliers in six, just like I do. Yeah, and it really does suck for the Raptors because they had a fantastic season, but there is something about them in the playoffs where they just can't get their act together and, and like it's costing them all these uh, times. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like maybe they didn't win 60 games on purpose so it wouldn't be that stigma, oh my god, they were a 60-win team and they got swept. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Like the 15 Hawks. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. That, that. So that's all of the series previews. Okay, so I guess... Something that I want us to do real quick is just uh, go through all of the game ones and not really describe them in any detail, really just how they changed our perceptions of the series and how they informed our uh, predictions for uh, what would happen. So I guess we'll start with the game that happened first, the Warriors versus Pelicans game one. How did that change what you were expecting out of the series? Uh, well, it disheartened me a lot <laughs> because the Warriors blew them out. I didn't expect that. I thought the Pelicans would go in there with a stronger mentality, seeing that they did have more rest. They're the most rested team in the playoffs coming into game one of the second round. I thought that they would be able to capitalize on their rest and maybe make it at least... I didn't think they would win game one, but I thought that they could make it a close game. But they disappointed me. They got blown out even though Steph Curry wasn't there, and that kind of changed my perception of the whole series because I was like, oh my God, if they can't keep up with them without Steph Curry, imagine what they're going to have to do when Steph is back. And that was confirmed by game two, so... You know, just in general, I, I kind of lost faith in, in the Pelicans beating them or upsetting them after game one. Um, it kind of seemed like one of those series where it's like, oh, like you doubted it before it started, but then as soon as the series started, you knew that it was over. Yeah, for me, uh, the biggest thing was seeing Drew Bledsoe get absolutely shut down by Clay Thompson and the fact, and just uh, Anthony Davis wasn't able to get anything started against the Warriors in the post. And he also wasn't able to defend them all. And, and like at all, and like they were lobbing it a ton to Kevin Durant, and like he just wasn't able to stop anything, and like it was bizarre. Cause like you, yeah, yeah, it was weird. Anthony Davis was having not a great game. He had twenty one ten, I think, which I mean, it's not a bad game, but like in a situation like that, I kind of expect more thirty and fifteen than I do twenty one and ten. So yeah, so that was obviously disheartening because we both wanted to see a competitive series against the Warriors, maybe put some pressure on them. Because while I have nothing wrong with them making a fourth uh, consecutive NBA Finals, you obviously do. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, if they do, like, they, they deserve it, obviously. No, no, of then, course, but... You know, because then it'll just be another good, good cool thing to say, like, oh, yeah, LeBron beat one of the teams, you know? And one of the reasons they didn't win four straight was because of LeBron. Yeah. So. Okay, so that's the Warriors versus Pelicans, and we have the Rockets versus the Jazz uh, in Game 1. The biggest takeaway for me was that the Jazz's offense is in trouble at, at, at best, and, like, at worst, it's completely immobile and they have to rely on isolation players and uh, wide-open freeze to score points. That With rookie Rubio, they could just throw the ball over the court and they looked like the Spurs, and it was amazing to see. And now, really, what they're trying to do is either uh, run the offense through uh, Joe Ingles, which is weird because he's Joe Ingles, or Donovan yeah. Mitchell, who's an ISO player, so it's also weird. And, like, it just watching uh, Game 2, they're doing a ton of handing off, which... It is problematic because it's a, you, you're telegraphing how your offense is going to run, and like actually just something I've been seeing in the fourth quarter a lot. They're running the offense for Jay Crowder of all people, which has been absolutely bizarre to see. I mean, I guess it kind of works when he's knocking down a bunch of frees, but like he he's a lot like Draymond Green in that sense. He's very hit and miss. Yeah, I mean, the 
taking away from Rockets Jazz game one, it's it's kind of like it's just like it's just another one of those inopportune injuries that you kind of didn't expect to be as catastrophic as it was. Kind of like Andre Robertson to the uh, you know going down for the Thunder earlier in the season. It's just even though they didn't really their impact didn't sh- like show up in the stat sheet necessarily. It's just their presence there made the team such a different team. Um, and that's what I feel Ricky Rubio was for them. I, um, I was explaining to someone earlier this week that, you know, despite Donovan Mitchell being seen as quote unquote, their best player, the reason that their offense and everything, the reason that they're so successful is literally because of Ricky Rubio running everything. And, you know, like Ricky Rubio creates everything for everybody else. Whereas Donovan Mitchell just creates all of his buckets for himself. Like, it's not like, you know, Donovan Mitchell never goes to the basket with the intention of giving it to another teammate or, he doesn't receive the ball with the intention of passing the ball. He only ever passes it if he himself can't score the ball because, you know, whenever he gets the ball, he's looking to score the ball. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, Ricky Rubio was extremely important to their team. And after he went down, I kind of lost the faith. I lost faith in this being a competitive series uh, when I realized how poorly the Jazz offense was running. And I feel like, you know, people aren't going to look at it this way because they're just going to think that Houston is such a good team. But, um, you know, I feel like, it, it, to me, at least, it kind of it, it further validates my idea that Donovan Mitchell really is not all that valuable. Because um, you know, if he was as good as people were saying he was, then I think they'd be able to at least win two games. But the fact is, it's not about Donovan Mitchell. It's it's really the the head of the snake in terms of having Rubio, Gobert, and Mitchell all out there at once because they cover everything you need in terms of defense, rim protection, rebounding, passing, playmaking, perimeter defense, and scoring. So without him, uh, yeah. I mean that 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 ultimate that kind of changed my perception of the series prior to even starting, but <coughs> game one was just confirmation of that. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest <laughs> things that the Jazz are going to have to do in the offseason, regardless if they win the series, is they're going to have to get a, a, a backup point guard that can do similar things to Ricky Rubio. Obviously, you're not going to get the same amount of uh, ball handling and uh, passing as him, just because Rubio is one of a kind in that respect. Really, only Manu is like the com- a comparison that you can draw, but. Just they have to find somebody that's comparable to him because the offense can't fall apart when Ricky Rubio goes cold or Ricky Rubio Rubio gets hurt because Rubio does have a history of getting getting injured in games and like I mean if for an offense that's almost completely reliant on him to uh, start ball movement and like he's a player that makes going at slow paces work they can't be in a situation where he just goes down and then you have to stop for like ten games or so and then just wait for him to come back. But I don't even know what like players on the market that, or like even in, on the tree block that like you could look at for that. Maybe maybe like if they could get Rajon Rondo, but like I, yeah, I don't I, think he's gonna be. I mean, I brought this up earlier last podcast. I mean, Derrick Rose is not a playmaker, but he does he, he allows you for not to not have a drop off in terms of scoring because he can probably produce just as much as Rubio. And you know, in the playoffs, he's showing some veteran leadership. You know, I, I saw a clip of him talking to Carl Anthony Towns and encouraging him after he was not having a great game, as he had many bad games in this first round in his first round series. But um, you know, I mean, he was on the he was on the Jazz to begin with before he you know he, he got waived and all that. But I don't know, maybe if they if they want to uh, you know, they could kind of play two different ways as well because then because Rose is kind of he can be kind of a backup for Mitchell as well. Because he's kind of similar to Donovan Mitchell in the in the way that he plays in terms of driving to the rim, but uh, you know, Derrick Rose, I think even at this point in his career, is a little bit better of a playmaker than Donovan Mitchell is right now, simply because he just he understands offenses. And also, I would never under, uh, underestimate the ability of an amazing coach like Quinn Snyder to get the most out of a player like Rose, who's still very athletic, and still very smart. So um, you know, he, he would just be an option. But 
the more ideally they would want a player who's similar to a player like you know maybe like a Raymond Felton type or like a you know like a Jeremy Lin type or someone like that. Um, Jeremy Lin, I believe, is signed to Brooklyn next season. But you know whatever they can figure out, they can even draft one. I mean, you know, just maybe draft like a a, a point guard who's been in the league for or played in college all four years. You know, some maybe someone like Jalen Brunson. Um, if he slips in the draft, I'm not sure if he followed college basketball, but he's a four-year player at Villanova who's very smart. So uh, I'm not sure how high he is on draft boards, though. So yeah. maybe if he slips, the Jazz can get him. Because I think they have two first-round picks. I think they have their own, and I think they have Cleveland. Well, Cleveland's maybe. Yeah, that that would be interesting. Here, What if the Jazz traded for uh, Jose Calderon? Because the, the Cavs certainly aren't making any use of him. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird how that is because... The the Cavs are twenty three and nine with Jose Calderon in their starting lineup in the regular season, which I don't know, I'm not sure the pace that that is, and that's almost a third of the season. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's over a third of the season actually, I think. But um, I mean, yeah, that could work for them. Uh, I just I don't know. I feel like Jose Calderon might actually consider retiring at some point. He's like thirty eight as well. But, yeah, you know, we'll see what they can get. We'll, I mean, I don't think. Uh, They'll, they'll definitely figure something out. Quinn Snyder is, he'll make a good enough pitch to the front office and, and tell them what they need to be more successful. He's a smart coach. He knows what they're missing. Yep. Okay. So that's the start of, and the start of the Rockets Jazz series. Then we have the uh, Celtics, uh, uh, the Celtics, uh, sorry, I keep wanting to say Phillies for some reason. Obviously that, why am I getting a phone call? Why am I getting a phone call from Mechanicsville, Virginia? <laughs> that's getting How silenced. Yeah, I, I don't know if I've got a hitman on my back or what, but... Okay, yeah, the, the Celtics uh, 76ers series, and I, I'm going to be honest, I haven't watched this game yet, so I have no clue how the Celtics won this first game. Did it really tell you anything about how, how they can win this series? Yeah, so basically what it told me was that this, the Philadelphia really is a live-or-die-by-the-three team. They only made five, and they lost by 16. That was really the root of all their issues. The Celtics played composed, smart hard the entire game. Marcus Smart was in there making things happen. He was attacking the rim, getting into the basket, getting offensive rebounds, doing everything that he could do to kind of, uh, you know, like it, it was, it was kind of like watching the old school Grizzlies like you and I, you know, we love that team. Um, it, it was, they, they scored more than that Grizzlies team would have, but in terms of how grittily they were playing defensively, it was, it was a spectacle to watch. It was really nice. Um, and it kind of showed me just exactly what we were talking about earlier. That's like, they they really could win this series if they just stay composed and you know and, and don't let the fact that you know they have star power that they lack star power overwhelm them you know if they just stay kind of composed and like it, it wasn't it was great to see them win because it kind of showed that oh like you really can't write them off even though they don't have stars which is kind of a rare thing in the league now like there are very few like you know you see Toronto I, I I wouldn't necessarily consider Toronto as having a superstar they have you know they have a star in Demar Derozan and they have a star who's kind of declining at this point, Kyle Lowry, but, you know, it, it's it's kind of like, even though they're a great team, right, like, they they kind of, they can't win games unless their stars have good games, but it's showing that the Celtics are, you know, they, they, they kind of make up for everything in terms of their team ball and their coach, with their team ball and their coaching and all that, uh, and it showed that Brad Stevens, and it, it really showed me that having an excellent system and having an amazing coach can actually win you a series, even if you're uh, lacking in talent, because, I mean, if they keep this up, like all they have to do to win this series is win a road game. Yeah. Uh, because and well, they don't have to because they can win all four home games like they did in the first series. But I mean, I don't. I wouldn't put it past the Celtics team to win a road game. So, 
Um, if you know if they can take one of the game three or four uh, on the road, then I think then uh, that's kind of going to be the you know the the second piece of the puzzle to beating the Sixers. Yep. Okay. And then for the for the Cavs Raptors series, we kind of got into this, but obviously the Cavs proved that they. They are going to you know, be playing better than they did in this uh, past Pacers series. They obviously have yeah, proved that by just winning the first game on the road. Uh, they struggled on the road a ton in the uh, Pacers series, obviously winning the second game. But in every other game, they got scored hugely. I, I think every other one was by uh, 20 points or more. So, yeah, like that, that was a big problem for the Cavs in that series. And getting one immediately off the Raptors, that's going to start to insert fears into their psyche, and ooh, oh no, here comes LeBron and whatever. Yeah. So that's big for them, and I think it showed that the Cavs, at the very least, their offense has potential to get woken up, and that'd be really cool. I almost, I almost wonder if the whole problem with it is just like Tyron Lue went way too heavy on being like, we got to improve the defense for the playoffs, and then the offense just fell apart. Yeah, I mean, they have been a good... And just a quick note on the whole Indiana thing that you were just mentioning. For that series, in Cleveland's four wins combined, they were plus 13 in all four wins. That was their margin of victory combined was 13. Yeah. Indiana's margin of victory across the three games, the three-game victories, was plus 53. Yep. So 13 to 53 disparity in terms of the you know the, the point differential and all that. But, yeah... Um, as far as Toronto goes, I just I just think that they have some psychological monkey to get off their back in terms of LeBron. Uh, hopefully, I'm not overstating it and jinxing it because I want it to be true because I want LeBron to win. Uh, hopefully, Toronto doesn't like win the next four. <laughs> that would be awful. Um, but uh, I don't think they will. I, I think like I, I just think game one showed me that even at Toronto's best, like it's like LeBron is just big brother to them. It's like when he really wants to beat them, he can just beat them and take the ball from them whenever he wants and just do whatever he wants. Um, and it's just weird to see their psyche. Like I remember watching the game yesterday, and after Le- LeBron had a big block on DeMar DeRozan, and after that happened, DeMar DeRozan just seemed like he was gone from the game. Like he just seemed like he just wasn't even there anymore. Like his his impact after he attempted to drive to the rim and he got blocked by LeBron. Like I think that happened. That play occurred with like three minutes left in the fourth quarter, and then after like the remaining three minutes, DeMar DeRozan. I don't even. I think he took one shot after that, and just. I mean, it's just so strange how they collapsed. I mean, there was a stretch in the fourth quarter where they missed 15 of 16 shots. That's absurd. <laughs> and they missed, uh, they missed like, they missed three in the last one minute, I believe. Um, and Fred Van Vliet took both of their big shots. It's just, it, it just kind of like the Raptors have this issue where they play such good team ball and such a good game for, you know, like 45 minutes, and then it gets down to the last three minutes, and they try and go ISO with their star players, even though their star players aren't good enough to go ISO against certain teams. That's kind of their issue, in my opinion, and uh, I think that's going to be the downfall for them in the series. And, you know, game one just kind of showed me that the Cavs are still capable of making the finals yep. if, if they click on offense. Because their defense, to me, has been impressive. I mean, they, they've been holding, like Toronto, like I said, top five offensive team. Yeah, you know, like. Their worst, they only had one bad defensive game so far in the playoffs, which was against Indiana game six when they lost by 34. That was bad. But other than that, they've been solid. They only gave up, I think, uh, the most other than that 121 in the first round was, I think, 101 um, or 104 maybe, which is, which is pretty good. So if they can keep up their defense and just get their shooting clicking, then they can actually be a pretty formidable 3 and D team, which is, which is going to be good. Because, you know, if, if, that's, if they really get it together, maybe they can even – you know, maybe win a game or two in the finals um, if it's the Rockets. Because if it's the Warriors, they're probably going to lose four or five. Yeah. 
Okay, so uh, that's the recaps of the games that have happened so far. Obviously, we have a really exciting game for the Rockets versus uh, Jazz game too, and we're definitely going to recap that as soon as it ends. Right now, we have uh, ninety-eight to ninety-four Jazz, so that's pretty exciting. If I, I would be super happy if the Jazz. Ooh, that was a nice dunk. Uh, I'd be super happy if the Jazz won, obviously, but we'll see. I'm not going to count my chickens before they hatch. This is the Rockets, after all. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. Okay. So I, I guess now we can get into uh, some uh, other topics just to, that have been coming up in the playoffs. Uh, something I just noticed actually. Uh, uh, did you Did you hear that? Uh, apparently, uh, Igor Igor uh, Kokos. Uh, crap! I, I literally just looked up his name and I've already forgotten it. E Igor Kokoslav. Kokoslav. Uh, Kokoslav. I don't know. Uh, Kokoslav. I, I can't remember what it is. Koroslav. Uh, uh, Kokoskov. Okay. Oh, I think, yeah, I think it's Kokoskov. Okay, whatever his name, uh, the Russian guy. We'll just call him Igor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Igor, yeah, new coach of the Suns. He's the first uh, NBA head coach to have been uh, raised in everything completely outside of North America. Yeah, yeah good, for, good for him. That's, re that's a really cool thing that we're getting uh, more European influence and just... It's always interesting to see the assistant coaches that move on to uh, head coaching roles because either you've heard of uh, about them usually if they've come from the Spurs or you have just never heard of Igor before and you're like who, who the heck is Igor and then you look him up and you're like oh okay he was also on the Spurs actually so he is pretty good. So he's from the Spurs and then because he came to me immediately from the Jazz but he was on the Spurs before is that true? Yeah, and he was also on Larry Brown's uh, 2004 Pistons. Oh yeah, so then he has some good experience then. Yeah. But it, coming from Quinn Snyder, I expect good things. I think he actually might be pretty good. Hopefully, if he, I'm not wrong. Hopefully, he's not like a David Blatt type. But or or Joe Prunty. Yeah, yeah, or a Joe Prunty. That would be awful. Now, hopefully, he's pretty good. Maybe he can. Maybe he can actually make a change in Phoenix. That that'd be good. Phoenix has a. They're, they're probably going to have another. They're probably going to have the number one pick this year. So, you know, hopefully, they can do some something good with their young talent. I don't. I don't think they'll make the playoffs, but just some improvement would be good. Uh, something something to slate them to make the playoffs in 2020. Yeah, twenty twenty. That 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 would be nice. Maybe yeah. maybe they get LeBron. <laughs> maybe they get LeBron. That would be something. Yeah, that that would not be good. Okay, so uh, let me just get into my uh, topics list. Okay, so something that they've been uh, repeatedly talking about in all of the NBA games I've been uh, watching slash listening listening to has been how they. Uh, apparently revitalize the system for uh, choosing referees within playoff games, and I'm sure you've heard about this many times, and how uh, apparently, uh, here, I, I'll just go off the note uh, from my head, I can't actually find it right now. So apparently like they're using uh, like your uh, performance within the regular season as assessed by the league, and then like your, uh, and like the two-minute report or something as uh, one of the other criteria. Here, I, ha I have to find my note on this, I... Talking out of my butt, almost. I, I actually think about this. Here, let me see. Uh, I know I put it on like the Cavs uh, Pacers game because I finally got fed up with them constantly talking about it. Uh, where is it? No, that's the refs you suck chant that was happening with the Philly fans. Oh, that's funny. That was funny. Yeah, no, that's that. God, where is this? Uh, no, that's me thinking Nate McMillan was white. 
Okay, I can't. I can't find it. So, uh, do you think that the system with the referees has been uh, fairer this year, and that like we've been getting uh, more uh, reputable uh, refs than in years past, or has it been exactly the same? I think it's been pretty good. I think they 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 made some proper calls. Um, you know, they're being more strict, which I think you know. Obviously, I like it sometimes, and I don't like it sometimes. Like there was that. Uh, there was a there was a play in the Raptors Cavs game where LeBron was just contesting a, a three, and Serge Ibaka landed on his foot. But like it was very very clear that LeBron didn't extend his foot intentionally. Like it was just where he was standing when he contested the shot, and that was called a foul on LeBron. But technically, it is the right call, so that was a good. And then there was an elbow to the face from, uh, you know, Kevin Love gave DeMar DeRozan an elbow to the face, and that was called a foul. Uh, and, you know, the, the, some people dispute on Twitter, like, that's not a foul. You can't call that at this time of the game. But, you know, it's nice that the referees, they're, they're really not, they don't seem to be considering all that stuff about, like, oh, like, it's this time of the game. It's this, it's this, it's that. It's all, you know, they're kind of doing a good job of uh, just, just blowing the whistle when they feel like it's it's warranted. But, uh, you know, that being said, there have been some blown calls, like, that, uh <clears throat> The, the goaltending call in in the in, uh, in game five of uh, Indiana Cleveland that could have changed the complexion of that series, but for the you know I think it's been fine. Um, I think the only issue that I have with it is uh, the one referee who's ejected LeBron. LeBron James has only been ejected from a game in the in his career one time, and it was this season. And uh, the referee who did that, his name is Kane Fitzgerald, I think, or not? Yeah, his first name is Kane. Maybe his I don't know what his last name is, but his first name is Kane. And uh, he is one of the referees for the playoffs. I prefer for him not to be there because he, he kind of seemed one of like uh, one of the newer, more emotional referees who kind of like doesn't really give you a pass and all that stuff. So, um, you know, he's probably the only one that I would have an issue with, just because I mean, I feel like it says something about LeBron's character on the court if he's only been ejected one time in 15 years, and it was from that one referee who just it was a one technical ejection too. It wasn't even two texts. So, you know, he seemed yeah, he's be the only one that I have an issue with. Otherwise, I think the rest have been pretty fine. Yeah, and like it seems like it's a lot of the refs that you would always expect. Like I, I, I would say expecting. I kept expecting to see uh, Ken Maurer in the series, and like he was doing like one of the last ones in the first round. I couldn't believe that I hadn't seen him yet. And I'm like, wow, is Ken Maurer really not here? But yeah, he, he eventually made it. But so I, that's really one of the only refs that I actually know by name, and that's probably a good thing to be honest. Uh, yeah, I know Ken Maurer, Joey Crawford when he was still refing. Yeah. I know Lauren Holdcamp because she's the only woman. Um, I think she was actually in one of those series. I forget which one. She might be. She's one of the more reputable refs. People people say that she makes good calls. I mean, I personally don't think she makes the best calls because she has a lot of you you know people. I, she's one of the reasons Chris Paul's not in the conference finals. But you know, again, that's that's another thing. And then uh, there's one uh, African American referee, but I can't remember his name off the top of my head. That's pretty well known. Yeah, I'll look at the list of the referees' names, but in the meantime, uh, something that the commentators were talking about while they were doing this, I forget which uh, group it was, so they were mentioning how, like, apparently there was a similar system going on with the commentators, and, like, the best ones from that will uh, move on to the next rounds. Now, I'm not going to ask you what you think about that, but uh, what I am curious to see is if you have a favorite uh, either commentary team or, like, an individual uh, commentator for the NBA, because I, I know that's something I always think about for baseball, but I, oh, I haven't... Uh, don't like. There are a lot that I don't like. Um, oh, yeah, like I, I'd love to hear which ones you don't like as well. Yeah, so I, I mean, well, I, I start. I love Mike Green. Um, he's always very enthusiastic. He popularized the bang when someone hits an important shot at the end of a game. Um, bang! Like, you yeah, know, that's that's always memorable. Um, I associate like that that word with like all these crazy shots now, and that's pretty cool that he was able to do that, capture that. Um, I don't really like Mark Jackson that much on commentary. I feel like he says a lot of the same things repetitively. 
Um, and he just kind of says, you know, like plain stuff. Uh, Jeff Van Gundy can be fine, but he can be a little bit annoying. Um, they, that that commentary team is very lucky that they have Mike Green because otherwise it would be very disliked because Mark Jackson is kind of boring and Jeff Van Gundy is kind of annoying. Mike Green is a really good, you know, he's cheerful, energetic, and smart, and you know he he does a he does a good job of, you know, like the most important thing I think with commentary is balancing how much you talk about like the actual game versus talking about outside things. Mike Breen hits that balance right in the middle, whereas, you know, Jeff Van Gundy talks a lot about outside stuff and rarely ever talks about the game. And then, you know, Mark Jackson tries to talk way too much about the game and just doesn't say anything about anything else. Um, and then, you know, I like, uh, I, I don't know all their names off the top of my head, but the guy, I don't know if you watched game five of, uh, of uh, Indiana Cleveland when LeBron hit the game winner at the buzzer. Yeah, I'll check who was on the commentary for that. Yeah, I don't like the guy who said like LeBron James. Like I don't, I don't like that guy. That guy, I don't like his voice. Uh, and the and actually both LeBron buzzer beaters this year, I haven't liked the guys on commentary. There was a guy who was like James catches fires ball game. I, I didn't like that. I don't like him. <laughs> I don't like the Warriors color commentators. Um, I don't like Hubie Brown. Oh really? I kind of yeah. like Hubie Brown actually. <laughs> I don't like him that much. I, I like him, like, because he seems, you know, he's old, seems like a nice guy, but just his voice is a little bit difficult to follow on some broadcasts. Oh, I think, um, I think, I, uh, do you think it's easier or harder to follow than someone like uh, PJ Carlissimo? Who is that? Which guy is that? Uh, the guy with the New York accent. Oh, yeah, no, I, I don't like him either. Okay. I don't like the guy, who, the guy with Hubie Brown, I don't like that much either, the African-American guy, I don't know what his name is. Um. Yeah, I, I'm I'm trying to pull up the announcer schedule right now. Unfortunately, the Chromebook had it blocked, so right now I have to hunt it down on my phone. But I like Austin Carr on the, the Heat commentates for Cleveland. I like I like the the things that he says. He says you know like throws the hammer down. That's that's always fun. And then you know he always talks about LeBron. Like he gets very excited anytime LeBron does anything. And then like anytime Love does something important, he's like, "Hey, Love is in the building," and you know that all all fun stuff like that. Um, the guy who works with Austin Carr, I don't know his name, but he's, he's not that great. Um, the Charlotte Hornets commentary team is one of the worst I've ever heard. They're awful. Um, let's see. Boston is pretty good. They're, they're, they're nice and monotone, but, you know, they, they still give good excitement. Uh, oh, and uh, probably my favorite is uh, the commentator for the L.A. Clippers. It says, me, oh, my. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I have, I have no clue. Yeah, he's, he he uh, he commentated all of this like stuff with um, Blake Griffin. He'd be like, "Me, oh my," and like all this. Oh wow, ja the Jazz are up uh, twelve. Yeah, Warren. I know. It's been incredible. Let's see. Let's watch the end of this game. Oh, Harden. Oh yeah. no. Yeah, is he hurt? No, he just, just got a free. Oh, okay. Oh, thank God he didn't get hurt. Yeah, that but um. Yeah, no, uh, if you can look into that, just look into the, the Clippers commentator who says, me, oh my, he's, he's very fun to watch. He's, he's always, he was, he was literally the perfect commentator for Lob City. Yeah, so, okay, the guy who uh, did commentary with uh, Huey Brown was uh, Mark, Mark Jones, apparently, so. Yeah, he's a little boring. Okay, yeah, so there's Mark I Jones. I like Mark. She does a good job when she commentates. Yeah, yeah, she does a fantastic job, yeah. She is pretty good. Yeah, they put her on the sidelines too often. Yeah, I know. She should be one of the booths. Yeah. Her, so. Green, and, you know, someone else. 
Okay. So, uh, and did you say it was the Pacers game five? Yeah, Pacers Cavs game five in Cleveland when LeBron at the the game winner. The guy who was he he was yelling at the buzzer. He was like, I don't remember what he said. He was like LeBron James. Okay, so it was either Ian Eagle or Brent Barry. So I'm really gonna hope it was Brent Barry because I was actually gonna say Ian Eagle is actually my favorite uh, commentator. Which one is? Uh, oh, is there only two of them? Uh, yeah, well, there was also Allie Go Force, but I don't think she said that. Was it Game Five? Oh, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't really like Brent Barry or the other guy. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, but I mean, but it's not that it's it's really not like throughout the game that I don't like him. It's it's really just like when like when he yells. <laughs> yeah, there are no. He, there are... he does good insight throughout the game. It's just when he was yelling at the end, it was like LeBron James. That was that was a little annoying, but yeah, Barry's kind of boring as well. Though. Yeah, it's kind of hard to get the yelling right as an announcer. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the only one I, I know, who I, I, like Mike Green perfected it just because rather than yelling, he just says a single word. He just says, bang! <laughs> and that's not annoying because it's, like, catchy. Yeah. then it's, like, when you watch it yourself, you're like, bang! And then, you know, it's a good catchy thing that he, that he came up with. Yeah, that is pretty good. Okay, so that's the announcer thing. Okay, so something else uh, that uh, really is a holdover from uh, baseball for me is, like, I love looking at the different stadiums in baseball because, you know, it's a really cool thing that, like, all of the stadiums have a different dimension. Now, obviously, in basketball, that's not a factor. But regardless, do you have a favorite stadium in, like, your le- and, like a least favorite stadium or arena or whatever? Um, I hate Brooklyn's. The wood, the wood, the floors in Brooklyn stadiums are just weird with the hexagon, like, honeycomb pattern thing. It's just... I don't know, that, that's Charlotte, but Charlotte has a honeycomb pattern, but like the, the weird wood in Brooklyn is just weird and it's dark and dingy. Um, I like, uh, let's see, um, I like Cleveland's. I think Cleveland's has good colors, it's, you know. Um, the Raptors is nice, but it, it seems a little dark as well. Um, you know, the Warriors, I don't like the Warriors really necessarily as a team, but they do have an amazing home court. Um, it's always lively and energetic, and their stadium is very nice. And uh, the King's new building, the Chase One Center, is, is nice. Uh, Jazz, the Jazz's building is, is nice. Um, the Thunder have a nice building. Other than that, those are probably, but I mean, there are a lot of boring ones as well. Like, I feel like the Toyota Center where Houston plays is not that exciting. Talking Stick Resort Arena where the Suns plays. <laughs> yeah. So, it's also um, the worst named. TD Garden, I think, is TD Garden and Madison Square Garden, in my opinion. Both of those are a little bit overrated. I don't really, like, I'm sure the area around them is great and all that in Boston and New York, but the stadiums themselves really don't, they don't speak to me at all. I really don't care for them. Yeah, the only thing I like about uh, TD Garden is those little uh, corner tables that they have on, like, the corners of the court that, like, you can just come up and sit at. I I don't... Yeah, those are nice. Yeah, I don't understand why those are there, but I like the touch. But yeah, my, my favorite would have to be uh, Golden One Center. That's We can say that Brandon Devick is a horrible uh, basketball operations person, but he's a really good uh, financial owner. Yeah, he, he, I mean, he does good in terms of, like, I guess running the team without, like, running the team, if, in a way. Yeah. Like running the team from an exterior perspective, not really the actual basketball of the team. Yeah, and that's always the problem with owners. If you if you get a bad owner, like you can't get rid of them. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. And also that like the NBA uh, forces the and not even majority uh, stakeholder, the plurality stakeholder. So that just means you can have even less than fifty percent of the 
actual team owned and you get 100% of the say over how it's run. So, I mean, that's that's a really stupid thing that the NBA does, but they require it. Yeah, the Pistons new arena, I think, is overrated as well. Don't think it's very nice. The Bulls, the United Center is very classic. It's it's good. That that's I've been in the United Center. It's nice. Yeah, it's also one of the biggest. But something I was looking up also because I was yeah curious to see if like other stadiums in the world like went over the you know, around twenty thousand uh, max capacity for these stadiums. So I was looking at uh, a basketball arena in the Philippines that's literally fifty thousand. Uh, it holds fifty thousand people, and it's it's an actual basketball arena. It's not like some Olympic stadium that got converted. It, it's meant for basketball, and it's literally fifty thousand people. That's crazy. Yeah, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. It's like a uh, what, what do they call it? It's like the one of those uh, concert halls that's like shaped like a bowl. It, oh, that's nice. It, it's absolutely bizarre. Did you see that uh, James Harden good defense on Donovan Mitchell? Just yeah, now? yeah, he's playing hard. It's pretty. Hopefully, he makes both these free throws. Yeah, I kind of want him to win. <laughs> I'm kind of hoping for some overtime. Oh yeah, that would be good. I think that I, if any team is capable of doing it, then Houston. Yeah. That is for sure. For anyone watching, the score is one over. For anyone listening, it's 104, 111, 146 left in the game at the time of this recording. Yeah, so how many uh, actual NBA games have you attended in person? I've only been to one, actually. Oh, okay. Oh, well, so, uh, in, uh, it was in. I think it was in. It was, it was when. It was last season. Dwayne Wade was on the Bulls. I remember going to it because it was a it was the Bulls and Sixers in Chicago, and I was very excited because um, I I thought I would be watching Joel Embiid, and then you know I get there, and then they announced Joel Embiid is not playing tonight, and it's like oh that's annoying. Um, so that was the first time that I really felt the whole stars resting issue personally. Um, it wasn't a big deal because like you know he was injured obviously, and you know he, he was doing the whole thing where he wasn't playing back to backs, and you know he's almost minutes restrictions and all that. But yeah. the game was very good. Um, it, it had a highlight in there from Dwayne Wade where he, he hit a he threw a fake pass behind uh, Robert Covington's back, and Robert Covington spun around and looked for it, and then Dwayne Wade hit a fadeaway that actually made a Sports Center and some other websites and stuff. So it was cool to see that in person, and it's probably you know the most I ever considered the fact that Robin Lopez is a legitimate NBA player because he had a very good game that night. He had like 16 points or something. And uh, I saw Jimmy Butler's athleticism firsthand, which was really impressive. It's it's cool to have to, to see them live. Where, like, it's like you see them on TV and they jump through the air and it just looks so casual. But then you see it in real life and it's like, oh my god, like he actually got really high in the air. Um, yeah. And seeing dunks live is, is a completely different experience than watching them on TV. Yeah, and like especially seeing those centers like jump like four feet in the air. That's always ridiculous. Oh wow, Harden and Chris Paul both have five fouls. Yeah, and uh, Dante Exum and uh, Jay Crowder was it? Dante Exum is in. Who, who thought Dante Exum would be in the game at a critical moment like this? Yeah. I mean, not like they have much better options, but... Oh, what a pass from James Harden. Oh, I missed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. So, if, if you could wear any jersey number, what would you wear? Um, I would wear what I wear in 2K, 95. Okay. Is there a story behind that? Not really. It's just I looked up one day numbers that no that have never been worn before, and ninety five has never been worn. Okay, and that's and, a- and also like there's some weird stuff about numbers. Like the number sixty nine is banned by the NBA for you know <laughs> the sexual stuff behind it and all that. Of course, which is kind of you know child, like because Dennis Rodman wanted to wear it and they didn't let him because obviously Dennis Rodman is Dennis Rodman. 
Yeah. And so didn't let him go triple digits or say, because he wanted to be, he used to wear number, I think he used to wear number 10 when he was on, in Detroit. Um, and then, so he wanted to wear 01 because 10 was taken, but they didn't want him to put a zero before the number. So he just chose 91 because that adds up nine plus one is 10. Um, but I would wear 95, 74 because, you know, those numbers haven't been worn before. If I was to wear a number uh, like that's more common or casual, I guess I would wear 41 in a, you know, commemoration of my favorite player, Dirk Nowitzki. Yes. But I, I wouldn't do something basic. Like, oh, I wouldn't do 23 because, you know, everyone does 23, like Anthony Davis, Draymond Green, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Fred Van Vliet, all these guys. So. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because uh, when I when I was I came up with that question, that was actually the first thing I did. I, I looked up uh, all the uh, players that no one has ever worn, and I, I looked up like uh, most famous uh, sports players in North America to have worn every jersey number. So I was disappointed because I thought I could find one jersey number uh, in between the four major sports that like no uh, famous uh, or like really good uh, sports player had worn. They they had worn all of them, so like that kind of sucked. But do you think they should uh, start getting into uh, triple-digit numbers, especially for teams that like ever hired a bunch of uh, player uh, jersey numbers? I know it's not so much a problem in the NBA when you only have like five players on the court at one time, but like when it's a sport like uh, football or something, you have like fifty-three two players on a team, and so yeah. I mean, I don't really see why triple digits is such a big issue. I mean, like you allow zero zero, which isn't even a real number, so why can't you allow triple-digit numbers? I mean, I don't know. I, I just it, it'd be weird, I guess, because. For me personally, I feel like it would have to be an important person. It would have to be the first person to wear a triple-digit number. Like, so like if LeBron wore a triple-digit number, like that'd be cool because he's you know he's he's worthy of something like that. But I don't think you can just have some random guy coming in and wear. Oh, hopefully Donald. Oh, well, he made that layup. That's crazy. Yeah, and uh, well, I guess we'll see in a minute. But Chris Paul just uh, completely blew it on uh, handling the ball. He just fell out of his hand and it went out of bounds. Yeah, that's a Chris Paul choke moment. Didn't list out. Okay, let's see, and... Okay. Yeah, it looks like the Jazz won this game. Okay. Uh, you... Oh, wow, maybe this series is more important than we thought. Yeah, I don't know. The, the Rockets kind of went cold from free again, and that's how the Jazz got back into the game. But, you Just know. like we said. Oh, look, there's Joe Ingles. Oh, Jingle and Joe. Okay, yep, the game over. Okay, cool. So it did. Did you like the change that the NBA made when they went from uh, nine timeouts to uh, seven timeouts? And do you think it had any effect on like uh, player rest? Uh, no, I don't think it did. I, I think I think seven timeouts is doable. I feel like if you have not like for me personally, I already feel like there's so much stoppage in play in the middle of games and stuff, and I really don't appreciate it and all that. I mean, I just and, and like I just feel like having nine would kind of just make it excessive because you know you already have those kind of cheating timeouts where like you know the, the when the refs are going to like replay monitors and stuff and you know they call that the free timeout because you're allowed to like you go and stand by your bench and then the, the referees use the timeout they use the time while their referees are reviewing the play to actually draw up plays and stuff which is like it, it's it's literally a, it's you get the same effect of the timeout without having to call a timeout and you know waste one of your timeouts and stuff so um you know i think having nine plus you know all those additional Many timeouts and stuff would, would kind of just make the game drag on more. So I personally don't have a problem with seven. I think it's good right now. I just I just think it'd be better if you watched uh, if we were able to watch games where where you know more coaches were conscious of their timeouts because you know you just think of certain situations that I that I've watched in games and it's like like wow like this game would be completely different if that coach just hadn't used that timeout earlier. You know I just think uh, 
I think it's extremely important to have a, a, a coach who's conscious of how many timeouts you have because, you know, there's some coaches who just don't care about them and don't value them at all. And then you have, you know, great coaches like Brad Stevens who value the hell out of them and always use them at the right times. Yeah. Okay. That's one thing Toronto is actually not that bad at. Toronto was always very good at making sure the team has a timeout. He is very good at that. Yeah, we can give him some credit there. Okay. So, all right. Do you think that they should have uh, TV timeouts then, or would you want them to just get rid of them if, like, it, if they found a way to like? Well, here, what about this? What if they got rid of uh, TV timeouts, but they brought it brought it back up to nine timeouts? I'm sorry. Say it again. So, what if the NBA uh, made a rule where, like, no more TV, team, yeah, not team, uh, why am I saying that, uh, TV timeouts anymore, so, like, no more stoppages just so, like, they can get a commercial in, and instead brought the timeouts back up to nine, so, like, they would get those commercials back then? Oh, yeah, that, that I guess, wouldn't be that poor of an idea. I mean, I just kind of think that there should be more done to improve the fluidity of the game, because, like, you know, the hack-a-shack, the hack-a-rule, whatever change that they made was actually really helpful, I think, because... I mean, I just think, um, I just think about like, uh, like, I mean, because when I think back to games that I was watching in like 2016 versus games I'm watching now, like the fluidity of the game really does seem to be improved. And I just think as long as the NBA keeps doing things that'll, you know, benefit that, then I think, you know, then I think it's in good shape. Oh yeah, especially if you're watching like a Clippers game. Like I, I, I just remember one time uh, watching like a Clippers versus the Rockets game, and it was literally like a three-hour game because like they were just constantly uh, fouling the centers, and it was ridiculous. Or a poor DeAndre Jordan, I think. They lost a playoff game as a result of that. I remember watching that, actually. That it was a game seven against the Rockets and Clippers, and DeAndre Jordan just lost the game for them because he kept missing free throws. Yeah, no. And it was becoming a problem. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a point where like you are need to make sure that they're actually making their free throws, but when it's affecting the game that much so so that like basically the game comes down to can they make their free throws or not like it just takes away too much okay i agree so uh do you like uh popovich's uh style and interviews where he's just like a dick to the reporters uh i really don't mind it i mean i I feel like at this point it's like like he's so accomplished to this point where like and I'm not saying being accomplished is like a gives you an excuse to always be like a jerk and or, or anything like that. But it's like, I mean, to a degree, he, like his points are pretty valid. Like it's like you know exactly what he's going to say, but they just repeatedly ask him the same question. So you know, sometimes he gives them an attitude, and sometimes he's playful about it. And you know, but I just think Popovich, it's, it, he's just it, it's really just is a part of his personality. Like he, he really is really brash, and he's really, um, you know, he's, he's he's snarky, and he's you know, he's not like a. He's not like one of those entertaining, nice guy, goofball guys that you just want to talk to and have a good time with, like you do with like Steve Kerr and like stuff like that. Like you know, Steve Kerr is always smiling and happy and like you know, talking on the bench and you know, eating candy and all this stuff. And you know, he's he's like he's just chilling all the time. But like Popovich is more serious, more no nonsense. And I just feel like rather than scrutinizing it so much, it'd just be better if like like I, I think it's good that all these different coaches have different personalities because like you see D'Antoni. And, He's kind of a silly guy too, and you know, you, no one's afraid to ask him any questions. But I just feel like if every coach is all happy-go-lucky, happy all the time, and be kind of like, oh, like why are all these coaches like this? Like, can't they just can they just not have a personality? And I think Popovich kind of sets the stage for like people, like you know, for coaches who are more introverted and stuff like that. So I don't think it's a huge issue. I mean, obviously there are some instances where he could just be nice for once, but um, I think I think that goes without saying, like in any situation, because obviously in my opinion, there are also some coaches who are just nice all the time and just like. 
like you know you'd love to like d'antoni is a good example because you know they asked him a question about the playoffs and he was like oh even if we don't may do well in the playoffs like this season is this regular season was a great success we won 65 games and like that kind of happy-go-lucky attitude is kind of annoying if you're if you're you know looking to a team that's like no like you should want to win a championship and stuff and i think pop does a good job of relaying that that's always his goal and that he, he really just wants to win and i think all of that is conveyed through his attitude so i don't think it's a huge issue okay so I'm, I'm curious to see if you have an answer for this one. Uh, do you have a favorite playoff series that you've ever watched live? Uh, yeah, actually. Well, I mean, I've only watched a handful because, you know, I've, I've only been watching the NBA since 2000. My first playoffs was 16, and then I watched last year's, and then I watched, uh, I'm watching this year's. I would say the two, honestly, are uh, this 2016 NBA Finals because of LeBron's fantastic, you know, and like just so many things happened in the series that kind of like shifted different things. Because even though game one and game two were blows, you still saw kind of like glimpses of the fact that the Cavs could kind of take some games um, if they had just locked in, which they finally did in game three. And then in game four, um, you know, you saw the whole uh, Draymond Green incident with the with the swipe at LeBron, and then you saw the Steph Curry throwing his mouthpiece. And then as a result of that, we saw the Draymond Green suspension, which changed the complexion of Game 5. And then in Game 5, we saw a great spectacle of LeBron and Kyrie Irving combining for 82 points between the two of them. Um, then in Game 6, you saw LeBron go for 41 again. And then uh, in Game 7, obviously, the LeBron triple-double, the block, Kyrie Irving shot, and Kevin Love stopped. Uh, it was a really cool sequence to see that each member of the Big 3 have a play that kind of um, that kind of cemented, you know, what they meant to that Caps team and that year and that city and that championship win. That was really cool to me, uh, just because, like, I've really never seen like, I've never seen anything like it in terms of like, 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 because even though we, we see like, like when you look at like, like the big three and or the big four, I guess now in Golden State, it's like, if you're watching plays from them, it's like, and they each hit a big play, it's like, Steph just hit a three, play hit a three, and then Durant hits a three, and then Draymond hits a three, right? Like, it's like, they all shoot threes. But, like, that element in that moment was just really cool because it's like, at one minute and 50 seconds left in the game, LeBron blocks a shot off the backboard, Kyrie Irving isolates for a three-point jumper that he's fading away, and then Kevin Love gets a defensive stop where he's moving laterally all over the place. And two of the plays are defensive, which we really don't get to see that often. Like, it's, it's rare that you see you know, game-clinching defensive plays because, you know, we see game-clinching offensive plays, you know, pretty frequently. So that would probably be the best series, uh, the, my, my favorite series that I've watched. Uh, best series that I've watched, um, honestly, it would probably be, I watched a, I watched the, uh, the best series, the Indiana-Cleveland series this year, I thought was a good series despite the poor play, just because it was closely contested. Then there was the Cavs-Raptors series from two years ago. And then there was a Toronto-Miami series also from two years ago when Dwayne Wade was still playing very well in the Miami Heat were a third seed. Yeah. That, that went seven games. And, uh, you know, there was a game there was a game tying shot in game one to send the game to overtime. That was, that was brilliant. As far as the most compelling series I've ever seen, um, I would say Chicago-Boston from last year in the first round. Because, you know, Boston was the one seed with 53 wins, and 53 really isn't a lot for a one seed, so... They just looked extremely vulnerable, and then you know Chicago won the first two games on the road, but then Rajon Rondo got injured, and then they lost the remaining four games. So 
you know, that's probably the most compelling series I've ever watched because it really did look like that series was shaping up to be a sweep had Rajon Rondo stayed healthy because the next two games were at home and, you know, there's no reason that they would lose both home, or at least a gentleman's sweep. So um, that was very compelling, the Rajon Rondo situation last year. Yeah, and spe- speaking of uh, Rajon Rondo and uh, playoffs, one of, one of the most memorable series for me always has to be his... Uh, I forget what year it was exactly, but when he was on the Mavericks, that uh, in a ser- series where he essentially just gave up on the team, and I, he got oh, that Rick Carlisle situation. Yeah, yeah like fifteen, I think it was. Yeah, like even if you go back to watch the highlights of it, it's still incredible to watch just how he is just standing there on the court doing nothing, and like he's like lackadaisically passing to the guy, and then eventually he just walks off the court. Like it, it, it was one of the most uh, ridiculous things I've ever seen. Still, and. I mean, it's basically why I still don't respect him as a player, to be honest. But see, like the, the weird thing about Rajon Rondo is that, like, you know, since we're covering him, it's like when he's motivated, he's just such a different animal. Like, it's like because you know, I don't know if you if you remember this or if you were watching the NBA at this time, but there was a there was a series, and he dislocated his elbow in the middle of the game, but he continued to play, and he just played with one arm, oh and like God. that just, I mean. That shows so much heart and determination and willing to win. But then you look at what he did in Dallas, and it's like, what? Like, what happened to the guy who played with a broken arm? And uh, it's just weird. Like, I guess it kind of shows that he he really is kind of more about certain situations than only playing when he feels like he can win. So, yeah. But in terms of uh, the, my favorite series that I've ever watched, uh, this was actually one of the first uh, playoff series I ever watched was the Grizzlies versus the Thunder in 2014-14. Uh, oh, yeah. Like this, this was an amazing series. It was Here, I'll just go through my notes on it. So it was an amazing grinded-out series, and it ended in one of the most incredible plays I've ever seen still. Uh, Kevin Durant in the very corner of the court falling backwards with a last-second free, and he gets fouled on it for a four-point shot. I actually thought for the longest time this was the Grizzlies versus the Mavericks series, so I could never really find it, but uh, apparently the Grizzlies and the Mavericks haven't played in the playoffs since the 2004-2005 season, so couldn't have been them, and then I remembered, oh yeah, that was Kevin Durant that got that shot off. And yeah, it was just an incredible seven-game series, it was it just grinded out the whole way, I think there was like maybe one game that was like over 100 for both teams, so like... It, oh, that's crazy. Yeah, it was just so much fun, and obviously this is a year after the... Now it's two years after the Thunder were in the finals, but still, like, you have the... It's a first-round series, so you still have the big three intact for the Thunder, and it, it was just such a fun series. I, I keep meaning to go back and watch it again, because I enjoyed it so much, and, you know, I miss the Grizzlies, but, yeah, like it, it, that was always, that's always been my favorite one for some reason. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, I, I haven't actually asked you uh, this in a while. Do you, do you have any NBA questions for me? Uh, I'll ask you a few. Uh, I'm sure I can think of some off the top of my head. Um, do you think the, the, the Bucks? do you think the Bucks will be a legitimate uh, threat to the Eastern Conference with the rise of the Celtics and the Sixers in the next few years? Uh, I think it's an interesting topic because Giannis is obviously a generational talent, I think, but... It's weird because you see him underperforming so much with his, and him and his team for that matter underperforming. It kind of it makes me wonder like are they kind of going to be the team that's left behind or do you think that they'll actually be able to maybe beat one of those teams? And you know I'm not necessarily saying break through to the finals, but just like be the team that knocks one of the teams out in the second round and then you know 
goes to the conference finals and challenges the, the other team. Yeah, so if your definition of that is uh, performance in the playoffs, I'm going to say no, honestly. I I, I think a lot of people, they uh, expect uh, teams to get over the and this kind of like a playoff underperformance, but I think more often than not, teams just don't. And like a, just when they uh, start off their uh, players start off their careers like really bad in, in playoffs, like sometimes they get better, and like it, that's mainly when the team just gets a lot better. But right now, the team is fantastic, and like it just doesn't get much better. I, I think if you want to have the discussion that the Bucks are going to get a lot better in terms of their uh, uh, performance in the regular season, I could see that happening. Them winning like uh, fifty-five games or like sixty games one year, maybe if they just get ridiculously hot or something, but. I don't think that they're going to get much better in the playoffs. I could see eventually them making the second round just if they face like a really crappy team in the first round, and like I thought that would be this year. But yeah, like it, it's going to be difficult for them. Yeah, well, that's another one because this this is one that crosses my mind quite a bit. So like you know the NBA record book is always like people always talk about like oh like no one's ever going to score a hundred again, no one's ever going to do this again, no one's ever going to do this again, whatever. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's possible, or no, uh, well, it's obviously possible. Do you think anybody will break Scott Skiles' 30 assists in a game record? That's a good question. Uh, hmm. I would love to see a player just go for it, honestly, like LeBron, like or just anyone, like anyone who's a, like Chris Paul or LeBron or yeah, um, just anyone who's capable, or Rajon Rondo even, because he like he gets 25, 20, like he's gotten 25 this season. So, um, you know, it'd be cool if someone just kind of went out there and was like, ah, I'm going to do it today. Yeah, and, like, that's actually something that I wonder why uh, more tanking teams, don't, they don't do. They don't just, like, uh, go out and advertise, hey, uh, Rondo's going for the assist record tonight. Like, he's just going to go and try and get as much assists as possible. And obviously, that's going to devalue uh, breaking the record a bit, but, like, it still would be a good money-making endeavor for them, so I don't know why they don't do that, but... I think it completely depends on how the pace of play uh, goes in the next couple of years. If it continues to rise at, as it has ever since the 90s, when it was basically at the lowest it had been since the advent of the shot clock, then I think that it could happen. But if the if the pace of play starts to go down again, I don't think that anyone's going to touch Scott Scowl's record for, at the very least, a while. But uh, I, I say that, and, and like... Records always seem to break all of a sudden, and like you, you just never expect it. As something like in baseball, uh, everyone is always talking about the, uh, the obviously not non-baseball people, but everyone would always talk about like the athletics, like twenty-game uh, winning streak, and like ooh, the Moneyball Athletics, and oh, it's an incredible uh, winning streak. And just last year, like two teams got like a, a fifteen-game winning streak, and one of them broke the record for that, and like it, it was one of the most ridiculous things of the season because like. Everyone, no one expected, and then they win twenty-two games in a row, and like it's incredible. And obviously, it's not that impressive in the NBA when you have like a thirty-three-game uh, winning streak uh, capping it off. But just records always fall when you never expect them to, and it's super weird. And like even something like a uh, Devin Booker uh, going off for uh, was it like 71, 72? 70 points, yeah. yeah, seventy points just out of nowhere. Like Kobe Bryant uh, hitting eighty-one points in uh, two thousand six in just some random game against the Raptors. The uh, records fall when you never expect them to. And, and I also feel like even at a broader scale, because like you know, even after the Warriors won their first championship, I don't think anybody was expecting them to break the the wins yeah, record. Yeah, exactly. Seven three games, like that kind of came. And, and you know, the weirdest thing about that to me is that they're like. The fact they won seventy three games, but they really didn't even get close to the thirty three. Like 
you know, the, the most amount of games they won consecutively was 24, which was to start the season. Um, and, you know, like, it, and then it's weird to me. Then you think about, like, the Miami Heat team with LeBron James. They won 27th straight, which is the second longest winning streak of all time. But they only won 66 games overall. So it's just, you know, it's weird to think about the game and stretches and stuff like that. But, yeah, records are always are always a fun thing, I think. And I think, it's a, I think it's a cool thing when they get broken, especially when it's, like, the rightful person to break them breaks it. Like, I remember when Steph Curry finally broke the record for most threes in a game. And, like, I was, I was so glad about it because I was like, like yes, like that is that is your record to break and that is your record to have. So like, you should do that because you know Kobe Bryant held the record with twelve in a game for the longest time, and it's like, why does Kobe Bryant hold that? He's not even a good three point shooter. Um, so Steph Curry having that record was was something that I enjoyed. Yeah, I can definitely understand that, and I think that's a good place for us to stop. I mean, just for any listeners who are curious, uh, we actually decided to uh, record an hour later than we usually do. So hopefully we don't. Sounding any more tired, usually we do a 7 to a 10 to 7 to 10.30 slot. We decided to do an 8 to 11 slot because, you know, uh, we wanted to uh, stay up late, I guess. And I don't know, I guess we're kind of feeling it. So, yeah, that's about, that's about all we have for the NBA this week. So if you guys enjoyed listening to the podcast as much as we enjoyed talking on it, make sure to hit us up on iTunes and give us a five-star review. That would uh, be great. Uh, just yeah, tell us in a review what you like about the podcast. Throw in a couple questions if you want to. That'd be cool. Hit us up on YouTube at Topical Rationalizing the Monkey Brain. Give us a subscribe. Hit the bell, because why not? Seriously. And then give us a comment. Who knows? Maybe I'll read it. Probably, because there are no comments right now. And it's kind of embarrassing, honestly, because there's like 20 views or so, and then there's no comments. And, you know, no comment. But, yeah. Thank you all for listening, and we're going to see you again, okay? See ya.